0: Hello and welcome to The Zeros, and if you've never listened before, The Zeros are a set of years, the years of the 20th and 21st centuries that end in zero. And what we try to explore in this series is how much the popular culture and the historical events of those years belong more to the decade just gone or the decade to come. So for instance, in series one, we're looking at 1990, we're looking at the music, the fashion and art, the cinema, the television of 1990 and trying to work out if it's more 80s-ish or 90s-ish. And this episode is the last of our current run of main episodes on popular culture and it is myself and Connor talking about music. I'm not going to do much lingering right now. I'm just going to get into it. But if you look in the notes of the show, you'll see that there is a Spotify playlist that goes along with this episode. I'll speak to you more at the end. So Connor, we're going to talk about the music of 1990. And as always, we're going to start off with our time travel thought experiment. And we're revisiting the same mid-sized town nightclub that Mirren was in with her trendy kids back in episode one. And we're going to pick a pop-friendly kid sitting in that same club, loving the absolutely bog-standard archetypal music of 1986. Before I send them on their time warp journey, tell me this. What are they enjoying in that nightclub in 1986?
1: Probably, first of all, we're trying to set the scene, you know, by what does the club look like? It's a club in the UK or Ireland in the in the 80s. And, you know, it's probably not going to be too much like, you know, that Black Mirror episode, San Junipero. You know, it's not like a simulation of this 1980s pop ideal, you know, like a synth way album cover. It's not all red Ferraris and neon pink and... Ne I like Nintendo power gloves and cool jumpsuits. It you know, it's probably gonna look like the darts and I mean, you know, like the, the old darts, <laughs> the the Jockey Wilson darts. Ashtrays everywhere, people smoking Regal Filter, Lambert and Butler smoke. You might have two or three taps, you might have Guinness Harp Bass Smithicks. I think we're in Covers the clothes a lot better in the fashion episode, but, you know, as well as defined subcultures, you've got, like, the indie kids with the big jumpers and the oxblood DMs. You've got the thrash metalers with the skin-tight wranglers and the high-tech league boots. And then you, you've also probably got the ones who are really trying to upscale with that typical 80s power dressing kind of look. But then, most of all, you're probably going to get to see a lot of lads knocking around with dodgy plather jackets from Burton's and skinny ties looking a bit like Barky Smith. <laughs> Yeah, but the music wise, you know, assuming we're in a relatively mainstream club, if you, if you just look at the number ones and the big singles of 1986, like you've got some of the absolute pop classics. You've got like Billy Ocean, When the Going Gets Tough, The Bangles, Matic Monday, Peter Gabriel, Sledgehammer. I mean, these are all pure classics, you know, Huey Lewis and the News, The Power of Love, Getting That Big Bump. From Back to the Future. And then a little bit weirder, you've probably got things like Erasure, sometimes Patch Up Boys, West End Girls, Suburbia. You know, a few big crossover songs, you know, like you've got the to MC Walk This Way. Maybe you had some pretty big house records at that At that stage yes. you know that you had Farley Jack Master Funk Love Can't Turn Around which was an absolutely massive massive hit Stock Akin and Waterman basically just rules over everything at that stage it does end up in the biggest kind of criminally cheese moments but you know for, for them to start off with Dead or Alive spin me right round, and you know you've got banana Rama there as well but then it did end, end up in Mel and Kim and Kelly's worst moments I guess
0: it's interesting that in that very early stage they also produced Divine's big hit Walk Like a Man and so they were very comfortable with being overtly in Britain where, where house music was being played most early on which was in the gay clubs and in gay culture and then very quickly they sort of shift to sterilise that with their puppy preppy kids like Rick Astin. In Kylie Minogue, but always still there was that high energy dance feel to it, all that they were popularizing. They were basically a gateway drug to dance music by making very, very infectious and at times infuriating pop tunes out of that style of music. Because also, it was cheap and easy to turn around a tune using those techniques.
1: Yeah, because I suppose there was, just whenever you look back on those early days, I suppose you don't realise it was only a few years.
0: And and we'll get on to that a bit later, just, just how brief, actually, their reign of terror was. But... <laughs> reign of terror, yeah. Because, like, dead, dead or Alive was
1: 1985, and obviously they had a few massive hits over, over the next few years, but
0: then, it, you know, within five years it was pretty much gone. I think there's a couple of interesting points about that i want to get on to the other one i love is billy oceans when the going gets tough which was just so dominant that year and i remember because i we'd been big fans of like watching her in the stone on video so the video for The when the going gets tough where you first see the clips of jewel of the nile and you see michael douglas and kathleen turner and danny devito pretending to be back in singers it was like everything about that song was so joyous and of the moment that it was so archetypally 1986
1: i think i might have misremembered that they were on top of the pups danny devito and michael i know
0: they were in the video and they were all in white crisp suits just like his and billy ocean was Uh, looking so 80s billy ocean at that moment like he hadn't grown it grown his dreads yet the old three-quarter length silver (laughs) silver suit jacket so he's sitting there and he's hearing these tunes so we've got that high energy house we've got that great up-tempo soul with Billy Ocean he's enjoying the absolute peak of pop that is the mid to late 80s it's like well throughout the 80s it's just been absolute pop central and he's having a great night and he goes to the toilet and he follows our per couple who've already fallen through this time warp. And when he comes out, boom, it's 1994. What hits his ears as he leaves that cubicle and leaves walks into a whole new era?
1: I think if you're coming out of the Jacks at a typical student night in 1994, no matter where you are, like maybe that's the limelight in
0: Belfast or...
1: Wheelins or the Queen Students Union. It's probably gonna be Girls and Boys by Blur. Do you know what I mean? That that was the ultimate tune at that point.
0: And I reckon it gets followed by Supersonic by Oasis. Like almost immediately. The DJs are gonna put those one after the other. This is even before the Great War of the singles.
1: Yeah, no matter what, what way
0: we like to spin this, it is gonna
1: be Blur and Oasis of nineteen ninety four yeah. and there's no other way around it, like.
0: Oh absolutely, absolutely. I think if we were doing this in a in a mid sized city in America, it would be still unashamedly pure grunge. It would probably be Man by Soundgarden or one of the tracks off Versus, which had been out the previous Christmas or maybe some Judgment Night. But in Britain and Ireland, already at 94, Britpop is coming. It, it, if it's defined as that yet, I think it'd already been used as a term before then. And Blur and Oasis, even before that Country House versus Cigarettes and Alcohol War of 95, they're already defining what, mid-90s music is going to be like and what everyone's going to be talking about. Young lads trying to grow their hair, you know, b- bursting their <laughs> hair to the that side. Caesar haircut. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, Moddy Python, Biggest thickest haircut. <laughs> What's so interesting about, especially Girls and Boys by Blur, and we'll get back to Blur when we travel back to our zero year what they're doing definitely is appropriating a working class culture that belongs to none of the posh oxford bastards like (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. and they'll do that in fact i think mockney may have been invented as a way slagging off park life era blur definitely girls and boys as a kind of a celebration of club 1830 holidays everything about the way in which their musical style had changed from being unashamedly baggy jangle indie pop back in 1991 to taking on this more swaggering, dance-driven, organ-driven edge that you hear on Girls and Boys. And and Mirren and I talked about the change of Damon Albarn from having a big bowl haircut and baggy clothes in the She's So High video through to like the tracky top and that sort of like clubbing haircut that he's got yeah i think you're absolutely right he will also be assaulted by the sounds of some grunge tunes the dj will slip those in for the grungy kids in the corner but shit's moving on
1: it's i think around that time you probably remember this yourself you know there was a real kind of performative aspect of whenever the dj played your tune let's get up and dance to killing in the name or that's, like, oh, holy shit, like this is our tune. You might have been at the bar, then it Smells Like Teen Spirit, Rage Against the Machine, Sabotage or whatever comes on. And you go and grab your mate and you're like, D- really dance and it really enunciate all the lyrics to prove <laughs> that you know all the lyrics. You know, I, I was really guilty of, of this. Look at us dancing to this. A, a tune that you kind of pretend is really obscure, even though it's like sold. 50 million
0: copies. Yeah, and and had been released by one of the richest record labels on the planet, in the case of Geffen. We'll get back to that as well, about who put their money down where. Definitely cliques and belonging and proving that you were part of that gang would have been very, very important in a small town by 1994, the cliques and the genres that define those cliques would have been very very firm
1: but also a racket. another one that probably would we'll, would we'll, would we'll be playing would be a little bit of clueless rave dancing for the Prodigy's poison maybe
0: or chemical brothers chemical beats people dipping their toe in a little bit of rave culture definitely you're no good for me by the prodigy would have been in the most mainstream clubs in 1994 the prodigy had had a good early 90s and People were wondering, what are they going to do next? And Music for Jill Generation was certainly a signpost of where things were going. In 1994, you can hear Big Beat has started. If you're from 1986 and someone drags you into 1984, probably with quite a big upgrade in the sound systems in that same club, and you're hearing No Good for Me by The Prodigy, you're going, this is hell and I need to go (laughs) home now because you're actually torturing me. This is not music you don't have the ear for it or even if it's poison it's kind of on the face of it it is it is a hip hop tune or voodoo people sampling fucking nirvana yeah so you're getting a lot of a lot of crossover
1: there but just think back to a couple of years before you're you're maybe watching a, a really kind of scratchy video on the chart show of the prodigy you might hear like those kind of mentasm synths and it's all (laughs) at that point you still might have an idea of it being a novelty kind of music because it's it is all lumped in with the rave scene and acid house maybe people who aren't who aren't really invested don't really get it yet but i think whenever that album came out music for the jilted generation that grabbed so many rock fans metal fans just because it had the same kind of a- energy. had the same... Probably just this, that same heaviness. The same kind of intensity. But at the same time, you could kind of go mental. You can of almost feel like you had a more eclectic taste. Because, you know, there's like <laughs>
0: synths in this. But it's still, it's still pretty hard. And they would have... And they did on that album pay homage to Pop Bleed Itself. And they had... Populate itself on the fuck 'em and their lore tune on that album because Populate itself, the inventors really of Grebo of that dance indie crossover, but Populate itself had always been into metal. But still, for our time traveler, he has no reference point for this. I cannot think of music in 1986 that would have been above the waterline. Maybe if that time traveller had been a massive Throbbing Gristle fan. Or maybe Ministry. But he would never have heard that unless he was like a really searching out
1: for Ministry Twitch album in 1986. And
0: that's not who this kid is. So when it comes to suddenly, first of all, an enormous amount of quite downbeat minor chord grunge being played at some point in the night Rage Against the Machine. What reference point would he have for that? And then The Prodigy. I mean, of all of the stuff we were talking about I think that Britpop stuff he could just about handle, but it would still be quite dissonant. The organ chords at the start of Girls and Boys, he'd be going how is this pop? This is not what pop sounds like. This is novelty music? Yeah. That sort of like carnival organ sound. And the swagger and the growl of Rule with it or supersonic that you're getting from Oasis like he doesn't understand if you're I hear Oasis in 1994 we're going who are these stone roses rip off merchants like we've got a reference point for it and we'll get back to that but if you're from 1986 that stuff is going on the British indie scene is there and they are doing interesting things and the 70s and punk and the early indie scenes and things like Throbbing Gristle they're there in 1986 but not if you're a teenage kid in a club listening to Billy Ocean and (laughs) Stock Aiken and Waterman and suddenly you're 1994 and no one's doing this in 1986 this is insane like before we get to 1990s let's talk a little bit more about the 90s because it was a time when wherever you are whatever party you're at by 94, 95 you're in a house with CDs strewn all over the place vinyl is going through its dip and there are some CDs you keep seeing in every every party you go to and they're just always there yeah you're you're walking into your after party after the
1: students union disco and you're making immediate uh, opinions on like the gaff you're in what bands are on the wall in 1994 and the poster from the students union poster sale
0: for a start everybody had the pulp fiction soundtrack and poster quentin tarantino was responsible for a lot of cd sales in 1994 but as well as that you're gonna see Scream of Delica and Nevermind in most digs probably actung baby as well i know it,
1: it's the only
0: masterpiece album i think it would have been in a lot of places i was at because especially if people were taking drugs Acting baby was quite a good album to be on drugs too i think really most of the places i was in the cds were good to be on drugs too that's, <laughs> but that's the I mean most things are good to be on drugs too and in that sense actually "Raise Against the Machine's first album was pretty exciting to be on drugs like a lot of people who weren't into rock music were listening to that album because it sounds so class that's a pure like speed album I, don't, I, I listened to it on acid once that was interesting
1: like right enough what else have you got you've got probably Beastie Boys El Communication you've, yes. got, the, you've got Oasis definitely maybe that's that's probably 100% Blur, Park Life maybe The Manics Holy Bible
0: definitely And a lot of places you'll see Bad Motorfinger and or Super Unknown. Those two albums, like Soundgarden, become massive. You will definitely also see a lot of albums from 1989. You will see the Stone Roses first album will be in a lot of people's collections. You're going to see
1: Pixies, Do Little, of course.
0: Yep. Three Feet High and Rising by Della Soul disintegration by the cure what else Scream was everywhere I would also say I'd, I was in a lot of parties where the Orbs Adventures Beyond the Ultra Worlds would have been lying around
1: four in the morning type job
0: Massive Attacks Blue Lines and Protection
1: Cypress Hills debut album
0: oh yeah oh and the Judgment Night CD would have been knocking around a lot as well that crossover of all those grunge and hip hop
1: how cool were you in, in the mid 90s would you have had Slint, Spiderland no no like my brother did that's definitely the it's the coolest music album of the year maybe i'll
0: tell you what it is it's what it's one of those albums that everyone pretends they had at the time and yeah. like only i think the only person i know who did was my brother john and he only told me about it like 10 years later
1: what else did you have? You've got metallica the black album as well oh so god totally that, that would have been in every single matters gaff and like, blood you know?
0: sugar sex magic was everywhere everyone had blood sugar sex magic slightly less ubiquitous but still quite a lot of places would have been those first three nine inch nail albums like, now you know where you're at. If you're seeing those knocking about, they would. They were obviously very popular. Pretty Hate Machine, Broken, and The Downward Spiral.
2: Yeah,
1: in the 90s, if I'm walking into someone's apartment and I'm seeing those three albums, I'm straight over it, making a
0: beeline and sitting chatting to that person all night. But those were, like, huge albums. They were, like, really popular. They were being talked about well outside of that industrial scene Trent Reznor was being spoken about in the pages of the music reviews of The Guardian as well as Kerrang! So there's no doubt that you would have seen that randomly in a few places where you're going oh right you like that as well Tool less so I mean within the circles Tool's first album was massive but it wouldn't have been outside of people who were now properly into alternative music.
1: That's only for metalers and alternative heads. Yeah.
0: But at that point, there were lots of them. But you definitely also will see, by the end of 1984, the music for a jilted generation by the Prodigy in most record <laughs> collections. Like, But here's the thing, and this is where we're going to finally get to our zero year. What 1990 albums are you seeing on those tables what are you seeing that you can say copyright 1990 released that year our generation generation x what 1990 albums are lying around in student digs covered in stray risleys and tobacco
1: yeah it's funny because you know all of the albums we've talked about there's one omission like none of them are from 1990
0: Really? And this is this is what's interesting. Maybe Fear of a Black Planet? Yeah,
1: but then again, it is an iconic, amazing album, but didn't have as much of an impact, just for the simple fact that it followed Texan Nation to hold us back. So maybe it didn't have as much of an effect as you might have thought. You know, a few other albums you had. America's Most Wanted, Ice Cube... But then again, you know, look at the, the other albums like Sinead O'Connor, I Do Not
0: Want What I Haven't Got. But that's not on a student digs. That's that's like in a boomer's record collection. That's not on a Generation X record collection. Not on a young Generation X. Not kids who are like 18, 19, 20 and 94. They are not having that. Side by side with Scream of Delica and Nevermind and Rage Against the Machine's first album.
1: It's funny as well because it has, it has quite a lot of like, kind of cool references as well. You know, you've got oh, like, yeah,
0: what's it I like, Stretched Upon Your Grave. With the sort of hear drummer Get Wicked backing track to it.
1: Yeah, like it's a proper like almost breakbeat hip hop. But then again, I think maybe Sinead O'Connor, was just a little bit more considered and it wasn't as, it was just very serious music. You
0: know what would help here? What would really, really help us if somebody had sat down and properly listened to, first of all, every number one album of 1990, and then really spent a load of that time digging into the whole of what was going on in albums in that year in 1990.
3: This is Christer and Dave from Pop Collaborate and Listen, and we are going to see... What we think about 1990 as a kind of a nexus point for music between the 80s and 90s. 1990 itself, I think, as we have discovered, because what we're, in, in, if people don't know what we do, we are going back and listening to every single number one album in yeah. the charts uh, from 1990 onwards. And therefore, we're not necessarily listening to and reviewing and talking about the these big albums that we're mentioning yeah. now. We are listening to stuff like
2: Elton John. Phil Collins. Phil Collins. Phil Collins, but, but seriously. Let, mm. let, let, let's be very clear. What we're doing here is this incredibly public act of self-harm. <laughs>
3: yeah, it's true. Yeah, some of the stuff that we have had to go through. You know, the second... Album of the second number one album of 1990 was The Christians, and that's still one of the worst ones we've done. It's shockingly bad, but um, this is what
2: was big. What what we can say is there are an awful lot of hangovers from what you consider very, very 80s tropes. You know, obviously, the, the soft rock MOR, uh, you know, of the late 80s. I mean, what you can say is nearly every number one album of 1990 had at least one saxophone solo in it. Indeed. An awful Indeed. lot of them had synth bass in them. Loads. Uh, I mean... The, Th- that very
3: same 80s snare sound. The production. Very much you know? that, yeah. I mean, if you look at... I was going through the, num- the number one albums that we've had to do in, the, in 1990 itself. There were 11 number one albums. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, there's so few because Phil Collins was number one for about three months. Yeah. And six of those albums were people who were massive in the 80s. So you've got uh, Phil Collins, Fleetwood Mac... Elton John, George Michael, Prince, Paul Simon. Yeah. So, we are not yet seeing in number one positions new and interesting things it's still the hangover from the 80s like you say yeah. this is what was selling and this was what selling in big big numbers
2: yeah and let's and you know let's be quite clear on why part of this is as well part of this is you've still got a dominant music industry that will sell you what the fuck it wants to that, sell you yeah, right you've got a limited amount of media channels you know uh, at this point in 1990 you know sky exists MTV mm-hmm. exists but sky is by no means uh, in everybody's
3: heart. Oh, I, I don't think I knew anyone in 1990 in Belfast who had MTV. Uh, I mean, I
2: knew a few people in the mainland, but, you know... <laughs> um there were limited ways of finding out about things and particularly from my point of view coming from you know a, a, a re you know like a provisional town i mean i was in i was in luton yeah uh which is you know i it was close enough to london but still still not london but still not london mm. so my, you know my access to these things was very much what do my local news agents in my housing estate mm-hmm. stock okay and it wasn't it wasn't the kind of the big publications that would deal with other things. Mm-hmm. And that was the case for most people. So what most people were getting from was, you know, Radio One, uh, you know, maybe if you had a good enough aerial, you might be able to pick up capital and hear I see and hear Westwood's show. Right. But if you, you knew know, what to listen for, yeah. Exactly. But you know, you the, the you were driven by tastemakers and, yeah. and 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 you did what you could. Yeah. And and so I think that
3: if you look at nineteen ninety as a a midpoint it is absolutely a, a midpoint between what we saw of the the pop stuff and what we go to. I I see it as happy, happy, happy in nine, in the late eighties. Mm-hmm. That was the, the the smiley face of music, into what is commonly viewed as the earnest and misery of grunge. You know that's sort of sure. really so. There's a, a swap. There's a this is massive generalisation, but there's a, a kind of a, a swap between the two. And 1990 sits in the middle as. A lot of interesting stuff going on, but the stuff that was massive was still the middle of the road, huge-selling radio two artists.
2: I, I mean, I completely agree, and that's and that is very, very much my journey of it as well. Mm-hmm. However, I will posit you with this question: Go for it. as well. Okay, yep. had you been born uh, in 1970? Yes. Okay, uh, and had you become you know 16, 17, five years earlier? Yep. Do you not think that perhaps what you would have found is okay? What's going on? Is it Echo and the Bunny Men? Is it? Yeah, you're is very it, right. You know, you know, you can't f-
3: public image limited. Yeah, and yeah, no, for sure.
2: What you know, what you know, whatever the dissent was at at that time.
3: you no, absolutely. But I think because what we're looking at is how how society looks nostalgically at particular eras. Sure. I think if you asked the general populace. What, what does late 80s say? I think most people would say pop. Pop, 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 pop. Yeah. What do you think of the early 90s? Uh, you know, sad men in cardigans with a guitar.
2: Yeah, for sure. And, and I would say that if, you know, if, if we look at the journey from the late, you know, the late 80s was very much, uh, you know, the late 80s in terms of what pop is, what our very much our thing is, it's, uh, it's people like Phil Collins in big... Th- arenas yeah. with too much production like spending three or four months in a big expensive studio putting out a record and as we say sure. that's what everything that was number one in 1990 but the time you get to the end of the 90s mm-hmm. you're talking about what's what's uh what are the big pop songs they're all essentially hip-hop derived uh, Hip hop beats music. behind everything. Uh, yeah. yeah, sure. You know, you're talking. You, know, yeah. you, you know, you, you know, you. Hip hop has changed into the predominant, pervasive uh, genre that mm. all pop is informed it, by. It's
3: absolutely true. Absolutely true. That's what you see. No fair play. I don't think there's much else I, I really want to add to that. I think the 1990s sees a lot of the kind of the 80s last gasps of the big pomp that we, we we've had to look at and it starts to pave the way for more interesting stuff to I come. I agree. Yeah. And let's,
2: I mean let's let, you know let, let's go through you know we, so we've talked about pop there a little bit. Uh, you know if we talk about if we talk about hip hop very very briefly yep. you're starting to see, you know, uh, Public Enemy put out Nation of Million sorry put out uh, Fear of a Black Planet. Amazing. You, um, yeah, and you're starting to see the early hip hop pioneers, the people that uh, were putting records out in the mid 80s putting out probably their last records that actually do any business. And yeah. Cool J is an example of that sure. as well. Um, and what you find is that as we morph into the early, early 90s, that becomes more gangster. Very People much. understand that gangster rap is the thing that sells, and all of the big records, you know, you kind of end up with... Naughty by nature as as a forerunner of that into mm. into uh dr Dre into snoop Dogg. Yeah. you know those records become the things that start selling so one part of hip-hop is dying something else is being born uh,
3: yeah, no, that, uh, there was such a huge amount coming through that it was it was waves and ebbs and ups and downs yeah. but you could see kind of what was on the way out and what was coming in there was the new thing always you know taking over absolutely with yeah.
2: rock music you know we're seeing the last wave of Uh, you know, kind of that Guns N' Roses, Bon Jovi era where where people could actually release something and have some level of success within within five years, anything like that that isn't just already absolutely mainstream will be dead.
3: Oh, totally. And, you know, we are, in our journey, we have seen albums by, for example, Bon Jovi in like 92 maybe and Def Leppard maybe in 92. They were number one albums, but even at the time we were saying, but what an anomaly this was, yeah, because it sits so far out of what ev- everything else that was going on, mm-hmm. whereas five years previously it would have been this that was the big thing exactly. exactly so they were at that point they were fish out of water
2: certainly, but yeah as i agree it's a it 's a really interesting time it's mm. a, it's a, you know it 's a fertile breeding ground for new shoots, and it 's also uh, you know, the kind of the last hurrah for a lot of the guys that yeah. are headed for the Elephant's Graveyard.
3: Yeah, yeah, indeed. And so I would say, whereas 1990 for me isn't anywhere close to the best year of the early 90s in terms of music, you know, we we talked about 91, 2 and 3 as mm-hmm. increasingly brilliant. It's interesting because it is almost, it's it's not sweeping away any of the old guard. It's a very slow decline for some of them, but it is showing, all right, there is going to be something new coming in and it's allowing new stuff to start happening. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, look, thank you very much for having us on and uh, don't forget to listen to us on Pop Collaborate and Listen. So, Dave, Christer, like, thank you so much.
0: I have to say, before we started this, I was worried that we were kind of stepping on Dave and Christer's toes by talking about this because they'd already done so much about 1990. But what I think really I want to say is if you're enjoying this episode and you're enjoying thinking about the 90s and 1990, then consider this an hors d'oeuvre for their main course. Go and listen to every episode of Pop Collaborate and Listen, and it's starting in 1990. If this is getting you curious about the year, and we're really going to be gliding over a lot of what, dave and chris really got into the weeds of and it's hilarious and fascinating and hearing them have to listen to albums as bad as the christian's second album is deliciously sadistic to enjoy so connor a lot to think about there it, it really does sound like a crossover year you know like when it comes to albums like phil collins spending most of the year at number one
1: that's the problem a lot of times you know that that saying history is written by the winners <laughs> you know it's it's, it's all fine us sitting like 25 years or 30 years later going well you know talking about fear of a black planet and you know depeche
0: mode's violator but whenever it really is like enigma <laughs>
3: and, like that.
0: and phil collins with like horn set massive synth horn sections and like an album mostly full of crap filler with a couple of big hits in 1990 i was 14 you were 12 we weren't buying records beyond birthday and christmas the people who were buying records were baby boomer bank managers and that's, I think, what, what is so interesting. Certainly, below and creeping up above the waterline in 1990, you have some interesting albums. And certainly what's happening in hip-hop with gangster Rap and with the Bomb Squad and what Ice Cube is doing once he leaves NWA, that obviously by the end of the 90s is going to be everything. But in 1990, it is middle-aged men who know Eric Clapton who are getting number one hits <laughs> for most of that year. But what I think is interesting within those number one albums of 1990 is Sinead O'Connor's I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got. And it definitely wasn't cool by 94, but it was very, very popular and it was very, very good. And Sinead O'Connor had already proved herself to be a very interesting person to be getting on top of the pops. I mean, I remember in 87 with Mandinka being beautiful and crazy and exciting with her performance and her presence and her look. Even whenever you watch
1: it now, just the intensity of her singing. And at what age was she at the time? Was she like 18, 19?
0: Nothing Compares to You is the first real single of the 90s. It was released on the 8th of January, 1990, and it immediately was everywhere. It was the biggest single of the year almost everywhere in the world. It was so compelling. The video, the minimalism of the video, just her, almost nothing but her head, visible for most of that video and the tear coming down her face and the minor key bleakness of the drone of the backing synth and just everything about it did come in and say there is a new decade here i really feel like, i remember feeling that when i saw it on the chart show as the oh this is the new release that week
1: probably because it was so different from that you know that that mandinka that kind of hunky you know her, her her appearing with you know the dms pulled up in the skinhead and the you know, the bomber jacket, and there was just a real yes. kind of energy about that. But even though it was a still a beautiful song, really catchy, but there's just something so, so unguarded.
0: That album, which, you know, went on to be at number one, and I remember hearing at the time, what I remember was that my boomer dad was happy to buy that album, was interested in buying the album, like he brought it home. Although it was a big, big pop hit, it tells you that boomers still were the ones buying the albums, and yet I remember putting on and going, Listen to this, like you know, when you got uh, black boys and mopeds, and her referencing Margaret Thatcher and Tiananmen Square and racist policing with, as you said, stretched on your grave, where she's taking this very eerie weird traditional irish lament and putting like public enemy drum beats in the background along with quite staccato irish modern fiddle playing yeah and it was just
1: that just that really minimal minimal production as well obviously it doesn't sound like gangster rap you know a lot of these gangster rapper hip-hop records at the time were based around soul
0: loops funk yes. loops but this was just and jazz a lot of jazz yeah. you hear a lot of jazz guitar on them america's most wanted
1: which just added that just added just that level of yeah kind of mournfulness or or just stark it was felt really really stark
0: melancholy it, like i mean that uh, that video i mean especially being released just after christmas like at the depth of winter and the video is so wintry and what a what a strange start to a decade you know <laughs> But but yes, when it comes to those albums of 1990, if you do listen to the whole series, you're going to really enjoy their two-part special at the end of that first series, where they do their own personal selection of best ofs.
1: They deserve uh, to talk about their favorite albums after listening to the the nonsense that came before.
0: A Fleetwood Mac album without Lindsey Buckingham, absolute dross. The Christian sophomore album, I think I think possibly their last, absolute garbage. Now they got some cracking ones in there, like George Michael's This Mother Prejudice as well. But again, total bank manager album what was really interesting was how many of the albums of 1990 that they talk about that really are the precursors of nevermind so sonic youth's goo pod by the breeders i would say not so much bossa over by the pixies which is like one of my favorite albums of all time it's my favorite pixies album but it's pure surf guitar it is not the verse chorus first loud quiet loud of do little from 89 it is it is a very deliberate breach with that, whereas Pod is cited by Kurt Cobain as really what influenced him in first of all for how Nevermind would sound but also for why he would recruit Steve Albini to produce in utero because it just sounds so class it's just so raw but again these are all under the water line they're not lying around four years later they are in my record collection but they're not in student flats in the same way as Screamadelica or or the 89 albums like the Snow Roses album are lying around they like some kids have got them but most don't have these albums
1: whenever you're speaking of grunge there as well but alice and change one of the biggest grunge acts uh facelift 1990 i mean that that they were still going through a little bit of uh, almost guns and roses type type sound It was a little slightly glammy it was definitely heavy metal
0: before like the absolute horror of dirt you know a couple of years later i mean if you're going to a grunger's house you're going to see jar of flies or dirt but you're not so much going to see facelift sitting out on top but in the same way, you know, kids who were like either retrospectively or at the time getting into grunge, what have they got? They've got Loud Love by Soundgarden and Bleach. They're 89. And then they've got Bad Motorfinger and 10 and nevermind all 91. But 1990, okay, you maybe would in those houses, you would see Sonic Youth Goo. Probably actually you would see Pod lying around a few places, but in a house with a more eclectic taste where you're going to see Screamadelica and nevermind, you're not going to see Any of those 1990 albums there, they're too niche. And of those, the one that I really want to focus in on as an album that was highly influential for how the 90s would sound, but definitely not knocking around in a lot of ordinary student bedrooms, is Repeater by Fugazi. I knew Fugazi would have to make an appearance. Well, we'll talk about Fugazi in a minute, but first of all, I caught up with my old friend tony wright uh, also known as singer songwriter verse chorus verse the composer of our wonderful theme tune for this podcast thank you tony and uh, we caught up with our mutual love for this great 1990 album repeater tell me about your personal relationship with repeater
4: like the whole reason i know fugazi is because i was 11 or so i think yes. it was and we're at school and of course I was just rabbiting on about Nirvana and you gave me a cassette of seven songs you are like you like Nirvana you should listen to this this is way better
0: and and you were so right Fugazi was a word of mouth band
4: yeah and that was because that would have been 1993 for me Yeah, yeah, it would have been 93 like whatever 92, 93 so I remember hearing that and going "Whoa, this is far more advanced than anything I've been listening to. Like but more exciting as well, you know, on a musical level, on a cerebral level. Yeah and just like just everything about it. Just like the cover was so cool. just like there's a dude that's like on his head. <laughs> <laughs> that looks hectic. It just looked like a very, very fun time to be a part of. And then Repeater is just like yeah, they had obviously it was seven songs. And then the Margin Walker repeat, yes. whatever, it'll be 13 songs. They were still kind of like working on that and worked it down, but it's so exciting. It's like being in the lab with them. Yes. And then, whenever like uh, a repeater comes out, and you're just like, holy shit, they did it. Yeah. They yeah. got the they, they cracked the formula. I'm thinking about turnover and like just thinking about it now as we walk. I'm literally getting shivers down my spine thinking yes. about it. You know, it's, the, it's the subtleness yes. of just the, the, and something so simple as using the, the volume knob and the guitar. Yes. Just to bring up, that that little drone. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Just lures you in, and the drums come in. You're kind of going, "Hey, this rhythm section is incredible!" Immediately, you're just like, "Holy!" Like they're just they're one they're one unit. Yeah. Like just like a rhythm section should be. I'm that. To... I'm yeah. wow. like yes.
0: And then the slash
4: of whack. Yes. The voices, the voices just come through.
2: Everything.
3: To turn off the alarm.
0: And I like, I, it's, it, as you said, you know, Margin Walker and Seven Songs had the precursors for this, but no one was expecting this. No. No one was expecting, and it, it, I think it did land like an alien within sounds, the existing music scene. It sounds amazing.
4: Like, yes. It sounds like. It sounds like a more modern record than Nevermind, and it's older than Nevermind. Yes, like, yes. You know, like, I, like it's Nevermind's still a good album and everything, but it definitely sounds like 1991. Maybe that's because it's saturated in 1991. I don't know. But um, but Repeater, I, like you could put on Repeater now to someone that hadn't heard Fugazi if such a soul exists, and <laughs> yes. they would, and they w- they wouldn't be able to. I mean, they wouldn't be able to go. That came out in 1990.
0: Yeah, there's there's no way. Repeater by Fugazi. If you haven't listened to it, please. I hope this convinces you to do it, Tony. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you. Thank, thank you for introducing me to Fagazzi all those years ago. No, fucking, <laughs> That's the least I could do. I, I am glad to know that I was one link in the chain of the Fagazzi word of mouth. <laughs> so big thanks to Tony. It was great catching up with him. And again, thank you for our brilliant... Theme tune, and I think we'll be catching up with Tony again before the end of the series. But Connor, Repeater by Fugazi, I don't think that was the first Fugazi album you ever heard, was it? I think I was a bit of a late starter. I think I just got their
1: 1995 album, Red Medicine. I'd be going through crying, Hitbreader, and they were always this band that really stood out as having this, like one of these bands that's like a real ideal. You always just remember that this is not a Fugazi t shirt, t shirt. No merch allowed. The no merch, even the song, merchandise and Repeater, you are not what you own. So just at that really early time, it was just in amongst all the kind of the heavy metal bands I was listening to, you just even had at the age of me being 12, 13, 14, there just seemed to be something a little bit elevated about their mission statement. So that was the first thing that got me. It didn't really grab me that much, but it was always something that was always in the background.
0: And I think because they were such purists about their mission statement, I think that it gave a lot of latitude to bands like later on Pearl Jam Nirvana to advocate for very left of center ideals you know at the tail end of the Bush Reagan era like that Fugazi had really had to like take risks in order to stretch the permissible thought and speech of a rock band. Obviously, Rage Against the Machine would come in later and go, oh, that's nothing. Not only sonically were they very, very influential, but he talks about Pearl Jam on, like, bootleg live CDs suddenly breaking into Suggestion and Glue Man by Fagazzi. Oh, yeah. And I also talk about remembering seeing the Chili Peppers in 2003 in Slane and them singing Fagazzi tunes as fillers in front of all of those Muck savages in (laughs) Slane. chili pepper fans in the early noughties and they're singing pegasi songs to fill the time
1: i went to see the chili peppers in glasgow around that time and i actually sneaked in me and my brother sneaked in and they were playing songs i think were they playing song from red
0: medicine yeah yeah i can't remember the name of the tune i was kind of going is this happening
1: are they actually doing this but i think it might have been forensic scene
0: yes it was it was but going back to eddie vedder singing glue man at the end of a tune figazi were the band that all the bands everyone was listening to were listening to there's no doubt about that they were so fucking at the top of their game with regards to their musicianship the composition their production everything that all of those bands who were getting advertised on primetime television like soundgarden they were listening to figazi they were referencing figazi yeah
1: and even though obviously minor threat they're such an iconic band and they're such an important band but what a massive leap really from that hardcore to the, the kind of dub influences.
0: But here is an interesting thing. I would say of all the bands that get big by 94, the most inarguably 90s bands, as in the vast part of their output and their, and the biggest, most important part of the influence happening in the 90s is Fugazi, and it starts with Repeater.
1: Really? I suppose their last album was tw- 2001, wasn't it?
0: 2001. They release their first EP, seven songs, the same year that Pixies released Come On Pilgrim, which is a mini album, really an EP, it's eight songs. But the Pixies then go on to be very, very prolific. You know, they're like one album a year from 87 to 91. Fagazi take two years to release another EP, a six track, Margin Walker. Their first studio album is Repeater in 1990. And as Tony says in that clip, the first two albums are them in the lab. Them experimenting. There's some pretty second-rate songs by Fugazi standards on those two EPs, and that repeater is just a blistering declaration of we've we found the groove, and then they go from there to steady that of nothing, and then the absolutely amazing double whack of '93's in and the Kill Taker and '95's Red Medicine.
1: I know. I think both of those albums for me is just the kind of pinnacle.
0: And that's, that's why I'm saying, like, you know, a lot of the bands that we associate with the 90s are kind of actually running out of puff by 91, 92. They've been doing a lot of their stuff. Like, for instance, the Stone Roses had been going since, like, 86, releasing singles. I mean, in the case of Stone Roses, they really were overrated as fuck, and they had not <laughs> much in them. Uh, but the Stone Roses released nothing of significance in the 1990s at all. And yet, everyone associates the Stone Roses with the 90s. And again with the Happy Mondays. The Happy Mondays were really essentially an 80s band. They weren't popular until 1989, but they'd been going since the mid-80s. They'd been hanging out with New Order. They had been in that scene and they'd been releasing singles like uh, 24-Hour Party People in the 80s. Like that, the Happy Mondays, make a very big part of the declaration of the shift with the Step On video in 1990. And the one album I would say you would see a l- about the pace maybe is Thrills, Pills, and Bellyaches.
1: Do you think we have those kind of student nights to, to thank for the Happy Mondays seeming that they were, they were just a band in the 90s? I think so. Same with every single nightclub, finishing with I Am the Resurrection.
0: Yeah. And 1989 recorded song from that album okay fair enough I think it was re-released as a hit in 1990 but from a 1989 album by a band who would never record anything of any worth in the 1990s because that 1994 Led Zeppelin fucking tribute album is shite <laughs> from beginning to end and everyone spent five years going "Oh, enemy parked outside going oh, are they ready yet and it's like no because they're shit and everything that every one of them is going to do except for FEAR is going to be shit after this,
1: even whenever there there are various comebacks that they, they barely even touch the second coming at all. No, it's just it like shank. they just can't they just can't go near it because it's just full of it is full of shine.
0: Like I wish I could find Chris Morris's excoriation because Chris Morris had a Radio One comedy and music show in ninety four. So it was after the day to day got big. Him and Peter Bainham had this hilarious kind of like take the piss and then play a few records, and he. I think had been ob- obliged to play um, that Messiah is my sister song. <laughs> yeah. And there's a like a total wank piece of guitar playing by John Squire. who's going, and he just immediately cuts it to uh, that same breakdown and a whole lot of love uh, as an absolute up yours to what he's having to play. And then he comes off and he starts going on about how, like if you're going to spend five years recording your second album, like be like a teardrop explodes and like take an ice cream van around Wales and do something crazy don't just sit around eating chips because that's what they did they just went to a recording studio and found out they had no good ideas at least with Happy Mondays you can say drugs we took all the drugs we we actually bankrupted a record company with drugs like that's kind of at least admirable
1: like just added to that real admirable nihilism of the recording process itself
0: and at least Sean Ryder had one more number one album in the Black Grave album in him but the, the Stone Roses had nothing else to offer and I think that's where I say Fagazzi are interesting because as you said Minor Threat and Rights of Spring and all these other and, and Embrace all these other bands in the 80s they'd been in they were actually all seasoned recording artists and musicians and yet this thing they're all remembered for is an almost entirely 1990s phenomenon. Of all the things we can say from 1990 that are archetypally 90s, I would say Fugazi's repeater. As a culmination of what they were all doing in the 80s and the path they were going on, the moment where they make a declaration of intent that then completely dominates... A certain set of people's understanding and appreciative music in the 90s it's a 1990 album
1: yeah it's funny i remember i think a couple of weeks ago you sent me the video What what's the air video the all i need all i need and it, there's like a pan around and it's all it's like this kind of a cool i think what was that 1999 2000 so i think i think at the time you know the video was this It's isn't it almost like a a u.s suburb suburban teenage bedroom yeah And it's kind of panning around and you've got like, I think Fugazi Repeater poster is the first thing you see. And it's almost like, you know, it's like a real kind of nostalgic, melancholy type song. Obviously from these kind of uh, sophisticates from Paris or whatever, but it's just like a little snapshot of what would be considered a cool American bedroom. So you've got Fugazi Repeater, you've got like a Nine Inch Nails like air at the at the time. Obviously they were like dance music considered electronic pop music or whatever. But they were still kinda of latching onto that kind of really cool what they considered like a cool signifier of of the early nineties.
0: Yeah. Let's move on to Trent Reznor because I know Pretty Hate Machine was released in '89 and was a big hit. As was also in '89, the real thing by Faith No More. But they were both releasing singles from those albums in 1990. So I remember certainly the UK release of Head Like a Hole would have been 1990. And Epic was 1990 in the UK release. It was like on the chart show in 1990, the video for Head Like a Hole. And obviously Epic by Faith No More was like a big early 1990 hit in the UK and led to one of the great live albums of all time, which was an album I would have seen a lot in the 90s, which was uh, You Fat Bastards, Faith No More Live at the Brixton Academy. But that was like much harder music than grunge that was uh, maybe because it was more comfortably adopted by metalers. i mean faith no more were a band that straight up metalers loved in 89 90
1: yeah there was no question but because then at the same time you have like big big jim martin like he, he was like a, an absolute metaler. even though a, a lot of the like if, even if you listen to angel dust a couple of years later even though it does get a bit weird it's still it's still like jim martin absolute like death metaler trying to kind of get to grips with mike patton's insane lyrics and the kind of the hip-hop style like you know the Roddy bottom synths it's just it has the ingredients to be a pure mess but there was so many riffs to hang off as well
0: yeah and i think that by the time we're talking into the early 90s we were all defining ourselves by what we weren't and that was there were older kids in all the music scenes there were like guys in their 20s and 30s who still had mullets and sleeveless t-shirts and were trying to get us all to agree that Skid Row were a better band than Nirvana.
1: It was basically, I'm not that.
0: Yeah, but what's interesting is when you're looking back now through the sort of compression of time, the late 80s hair metal, Megadeth and Skid Row, like Metallica escapes that orbit with the 91 Black Album, but there would have been a comfortable sort of spectrum of listeners who would have had Megadeth and Slayer and Metallica and Skid Row and maybe even some Motley Crue records. And famously, Motley Crue influenced Metallica in their choice of producer for the Black Album. Very quickly, there's a, we're not that, fuck those guys. They're in their 20s. They're as uncool as those guys over there with still have got snow-washed jeans. We were rejecting the generation before us and it meant that we didn't see how much 80s metal was class, but Jim Martin was that crossover person going... I'm an old school meddler from the 80s and like I'm in the Bill and Ted's film and I'm class and Mike Patton's a punk
1: I'd say that would have been some absolutely weird as fuck first few meetings but the two of them like even Chuck Mosley like the original singer would have been definitely a little bit very left field kind of a singer you know almost that like bit bit of a rapping bit of like almost spoken word and art of tune singing but then then Mike Patton coming in with his like wine like Mm. that really weird wine that he had you can yeah. just imagine jim martin just looking up going what is this kid on
0: what i do think if we say definitely albums do not endure from 1990 into the 90s the singles the singles are amazing and they really echo and as i said starting off with sinead o'connor's nothing compares to you and that same month beat internationals would be good to me but also in that very first quarter of 1990 you've got enjoy the silence by depeche mode by Easter, you've got Adamski's Killer and Love Shack by the B-52s, which I know you despise, but will fill floors throughout the 90s. I
1: cannot. There's there's, <laughs> there's Love Shack. There's there's R.E.M. It's the end of the world as we know it.
0: Birdhouse in Your Soul, you hate as well, oh, which geez, is another 1990 album. That,
1: that actually brings me out. <laughs> vibes that but
0: kind of. also, more importantly, Easter comes and you get, by then you've had Hallelujah with the happy mondays and that brilliant paul oakenfold remix and then you have step on just after easter 1990 and you've loaded by primal screen and they just is amf unbelievable is that 1990 that is towards christmas that's that's they debut on the word that autumn jesus the, the word,
1: word. <laughs> How 1990s can you get?
0: After Phil's Gold being this massive hit in the autumn of 89, and then you have This Is How It Feels To Be Lonely by the Spiral Carpets, who at that point have a roadie called Mr. Noel Gallagher. By the summer, you've got Groovies in the Heart, and then she's had Unbelievable by MF. And by the end of the year... Trevor Horn is producing Crazy by Seal, who's already had a number one with Adamski's Killer. Like, it's a mad year for songs that you will hear. And, oh my God, Madonna's Vogue. Like, a, a reject from the Like a Prayer sessions. Did she add that on the, um, the Dick Tracy soundtrack? On the I'm Breathless one? Possibly. I mean, there's a lot of shite in that album. And then she comes out at the end of that year with the Immaculate Collection, one of the most high-selling, best-of albums of all time. Madonna... We'll get on to Madonna in a minute. The biggest
1: thing you can kind of take from the t- tracks that you've mentioned there, they all feel like crossover type tunes, do you know? Of the decades. There's a lot of electronic production here. Like the really, really well-crafted pop songs. You know, like Depeche Mode, Enjoy the Silence. You can almost trace the sound of the 90s. Or no, maybe it just feels like the end of the 80s, I don't know. It's it's hard to say because they're all really, really sumptuously produced. Like, listen to Crazy by Seal. Groove is in the heart. It's so different from the kind of the, the house music, which was which felt really kind of lo-fi at the time. It was all, it
0: was all very
1: DIY. Like, these were still songs that were really w- well-crafted. You could tell that a lot of work is going into these. It's
0: certainly unbelievable as you get to the close of that year. It's massive, absolutely massive. And it is the ultimate success of that Grebo, non-Manchester indie dance for a band that will never do anything again. I'm going to do something to you here, okay? Talking about tunes in 1990. I think this will be a nice segue to the next thing I want to talk about. I'm going to play you a B-side of an obscure dance single from late 1990, okay? And I want you to tell me how much money you'd put on the artist or the tune-in question, meaning anything at all. Okay, so, so far, so standard Acid House, yeah?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's still a little bit of acid here coming in.
0: Yeah, so, okay, I'm not going to tell you yet who who this was okay but how much money you put on this guy for the rest of the 90s like where, where would you place an artist like this doing a thing like this
1: um to be honest in hindsight this this is the type of music that is is playing in shine in like 1997
0: 98 easy we're going okay might have a bit of an interesting career dj and maybe a couple of remixes yeah yeah okay now i'm gonna play you how that song was re-released in spring of 1991. Oh, so Jesus. that was the original mix of Go by Moby. It was a B side on a single he released at the end of 1990. What I will argue is that when he re releases that with the Twin Peaks theme tune, even though it's released in 91, I'd say that's the most 1990 single that I can think of because of the Twin Peaks presence. And, you know, we see how Moby ends that decade. So if we're putting money on a guy twiddling with a reasonably bog-standard acid house tune on the B-side of a dance single in 1990, that's the guy who's going to be selling the CD that you see in every house in the year 2000.
1: I think you probably have the most return off movie, don't you?
0: I think so. So we're sitting in 1990 and we've got like 100 quid to bet on different things from the viewpoint of that year and what's happened. 31st December 1998, and you're going to put some bets down, and what what return you're going to have in your money, and the year you've just had, and the decade you've just had, and where you think things are going. I'm going to read out a few different names of artists, of genres, of companies of things in music and let's contemplate how much money you're getting back if you lay your 100 quid down on them so top of the bill here i've got factory records home of happy mondays manchester the great tony wilson
1: at the time i reckon you're you're throwing that 100 quid on thinking you're going to be on an absolute winner that was at the time the drugs hadn't gone bad yet you're still in hacienda being the iconic club the, the gangsters hadn't moved in.
0: New Order have become the the theme singers of the fucking England football team. <laughs> yeah.
1: You are making a fortune off Factory Records, or so you think. You're basically thinking that you're a biff from Back to the Future with the Almanac. <laughs> we are going to make a fortune on Factory Records. <laughs> then again, that's probably what the New Order thought at the time, they were going to make a fortune.
0: Factory Records was a real proper original punk ethic company and maybe just... Thatcherism finally caught up with it. Its chaotic craziness just could not deal with the slickness of the nineties, but also (laughs) drugs. So many, just all, just also.
1: I mean, I like the way you put in drugs there as a and also, whenever and basically the whole reason why the whole (laughs) fucking thing fell apart.
0: So next on the list, in a similar vein. I've got Stock Itkin and Waterman and Pete Waterhouse Limited Music. Like, they they have been very bankable.
1: I don't know. I don't even think you need hindsight here. I think in 1990, you're going, five years, done, we're done.
0: But also, actually, interestingly... For 1990 their most bankable star Kylie gets one number one with them and that's a cover version of Tears on My Pillow which is associated with her movie I would argue that the best songs Kylie recorded with Stockhead Kind of Waterman or Better the Devil You Know and What Do I Have to Do neither got to number one and this is a woman who released far poorer songs and got to number one with them in the late 80s. And she parts away with them soon after.
1: I think at this stage, you know, five years at the top, depends on what way you look at this, Top five years of domination. You might think you get your money back, but you're not really,
0: you're not going to be thinking you're going to get another five or ten years out of these chancers. <laughs> well, following on from that, what are you putting down on Kylie in 1990?
1: You're putting nothing on Kylie at that point, I
0: think. And you're a fucking fool. Yeah. If you get to 99 and you decided to put nothing on Kylie, you were crying.
1: Had she had she even left, left Neighbours at the time?
0: She'd left Neighbours, but I think she was still with PWL Records until like 92, 93. But what she does to reinvent herself and how she becomes second division Madonna, especially in the gay scene, is a work of genius. What she becomes, if you got your money on Kylie, and as you said, you probably wouldn't have, you'd probably gone, well, that's got to not last much longer. Yeah, because do you remember her movie, The Delinquents? Yes, which is where the tears on my pillow comes yeah. from basically oh what's she
1: at man you know the tabloid thing of omg kelly minogue is wearing leather jackets
0: <laughs> You know, <laughs> just a pure daft w- w- where does it land she's hanging out with nick cave by 97 the cool kid singing murder ballads do you remember nick
1: cave doing his uh spoken word tours he does often read i should be so lucky
0: as one of his pieces so i would say you're sitting in 1990 you're thinking the kylie thing must be over you've no idea her capacity for reinvention and you'll cry but on 31st december 1990 you're thinking nah yeah you're like the guy
1: guy who lost all the bitcoin in his hard drive (laughs)
0: that's that's what you'll be feeling george michael listen without prejudice is critically and commercially massive and he does have a good 90s up until he gets caught with a man's penis in his mouth in a toilet
1: but then even after that i mean he comes out with his best song
0: fucking in, oh outside outside.
1: <laughs> well i mean it's a personal favorite like i'm not i'm not saying it's, it's his objective best song but i mean it that's probably the best comeback the best response video you could ever have, have yeah. ever seen
0: listen without prejudice and the freedom 90 video marin and i go into much detail about it george michael definitely escapes his eighties orbit very successfully with that when, when you talk about a watershed like uh, right that's all over i'm burning the faith jacket I'm oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. my pretty boy phase i'm not even going to be in the video like i'm no longer your pretty boy i am a serious musical artist and you're gonna love me and they did like, I would say you'd be tempted to put a good amount of money in George Michael. You're going to do fine.
1: I'd definitely be sticking the 100 with with a bit of confidence.
0: Neil Young. This is my personal favourite. He's had a terrible, <laughs> terrible 80s. What's
1: what's that album where it? it's like a pink cover and there's like a pink Oh, Cadillac? yes. He was
0: ordered by his label after he was experimenting with electronic music with trans. They ordered him by contract to record a rock album. So he deliberately did a kind of like Really awful rockabilly album just to go fuck you, like to help like get out of his contract to piss them off till they fired him. But
1: the thing is, did he did he willfully make a shit album?
0: Yeah. The interview I saw with him going, no, they, they said make a rock album. So well, I'll show you what rock is. Let's go back to 1951. And as soon as he got out of that contract, first of all, he records Freedom, and then in 1990, he does uh, Ragged Glory, which basically are grunge albums. But I, yeah, I think if you're listening to Ragged Glory. I don't know pre nevermind do you have the ear to see that Neil Young is about to become the absolute god of the new era
1: what was that what was the moment was it was it, it was probably the time that he played rockin in the free world with Pearl Jam on MT, on the MTV was that 93 or 94
0: that was night that was night but before that Harvest Moon is massive like his comeback starts with freedom and then you get Ragged Glory and then you get Harvest Moon. If you're in the know, if you're David Geffen and you hear Ragged Glory and you've already signed n- Nirvana and you already know the 90s is grungy or, you, or you're going to make it like that, you're going Neil Young's on a roll. I'm going to put some money in there. By the time you get to Sleep with Angels, he's crowned by the mid 90s as as a classic star beyond any criticism
1: yeah it's funny it's funny as well being called proto grunge <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> and recording whole albums with pearl jam yeah the mirror Body even, even even playing
1: yeah. slain headline slain
0: and sleep with angels is his uh, elegy to Kurt cobain like he uh, kirk cobain quotes him in his suicide note for fuck's sake and the pixies by then were covering neil young like to a point that was stalkerish so I think if you've got a reasonable ear in 1990, you're putting some money down on a Neil Young comeback being fairly enduring. So let's go to the next comeback. Let's sit in a tin, tin machine concert <laughs> on how much money you putting down on David Bowie. And this I is mean, yours. It's, I went from mine to yours.
1: You're basically right. I'm a David Bowie lifer. But seriously, in 1990, you're 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 basically saying, can I spend this hundred quid on literally anything on the planet? Per David, like, he was he was kind of losing the plot at that stage. He would had, had a few dud albums where he was kind of chasing that filthy looker, you know, the Lads Dance looker. I mean, he'd had a massive hit with Lads Dance and then he tried to follow it up. Like, Tonight is really drab. Never Let Me Down is like, kind of the only
0: album he just
1: refuses to talk about. He just <laughs> basically just doesn't talk about
0: it. So... What then happens is suddenly he gets elevated to godfather of everything status. And by 95, he is playing with the Petch Boys and Trent Reznor. What happens between him in a pastel-colored blazer and a <laughs> blonde bob with tin machine? And is it the Buddha of Suburbia? Is its is it that? Is it Hanif Qureshi like, saying to him remember your 70s and and remind everyone else of it. By 94, I certainly remember big best of albums coming out and everyone revisiting everything up to and including all the Let's Dance stuff.
1: Never Let Me Down is 1987 and then you have Tin Machine where he had a year of, maybe a year or two of, oh, I'm just just the lead singer of a rock band, by the way. (laughs) Just, you guys just play along. (laughs) Just pure nonsense. You know, don't interview me, just interview... uh, Reeve, Reeves, the guitar player. <laughs> you know, I'm just, I'm just chilling out. Like, <laughs> just pure
0: it's, not happening. But uh, suddenly, like, uh, I mean, certainly by the time of uh, Jump, they say.
1: So he, he does come back. and Like, Black Tie, White Noise is, it does have some brilliant, brilliant tunes. He teams up once again with Nile Rogers, who, who produced Let's Dance. So you've got, like, the, like, R&B, kind of New Jack Swing kind of vibe. But then again, yes. I don't know, Madonna did it a, a bit better. Let's be honest, erotica. I don't know, he just, like David Bowie through the 90s, he always seemed to be just arriving at things just a little bit too late. But it's, it's still, I think people just give him a little bit more credit because he was really trying. And a lot of times people go he was just trying too hard, but at least he just didn't want to be chasing the same type of kind of crap pop music, cl- uh, classic rock, classic pop. But
0: uh, I mean, certainly what I remember by the mid-90s is, especially after Kirk Cobain sings The Man Who Sold The World, in that 94 unplugged oh yeah yeah the the big revival of all of his 70s and early 80s stuff but i also remember in the early 90s a big at first ironic but then i think eventually very loving appreciation of what he did on labyrinth you know like in the early 90s you'd have laughed at the Jodpers and the hair extensions (laughs) but actually the, the songs he wrote for that film or like I know it's for a kids film but there's some class tunes he always could write a good tune it's just that I think in 1990 he was so fatally associated with his popularity in the 80s that it took the, the kind of 70s revival of the early 90s for him to go oh yeah I was there remember <laughs> but I wouldn't have put a penny on David Bowie in 1990
1: Bowie's going to be at the, near the bottom of the pile here isn't he oh
0: yeah what about what about Springsteen your other great love
1: Springsteen 1990 you're not going there I don't think.
0: He's got number ones ahead of him and he's got an Oscar ahead of him. But in 1990, what's he doing? I mean...
1: Well, you've got Born in the USA, then you've got Ton of Love in 1988, which was kind of like his divorce album. It was almost considered to be like a real kind of a little bit of a step back from the kind of bombastic sound of Born in the USA. But then after that, he kind of sacked the E Street Band. And then he, he was trying to do a little bit of a boy just join a rock band. I can remember, like how can just Bruce Springsteen, just be just one of the, one of the lads. Like he was still, he obviously he didn't go as far as as Bowie, just being the singer of a rock, singer of a rock band in Inverness. <laughs> but I can remember, like at this stage. I, me and my mum were massive, massive Bruce Springsteen fans together, you know. She bought me my very first ever tape, which was born in the USA. But obviously in in between those few years, between 1984 and like 1990, 1991, I was listening to a different type of music and, and I can remember my mum calling me down. I think it was Human Touch, one of Bruce Springsteen's earlier 90s singles. She was like, Connor, Connor, the new Bruce Springsteen song, oh, come down and hear this. And I can remember, you know, I'm like scandalised. I don't listen to Bruce Springsteen anymore like no way man like, you know, <laughs> she, she, she really wanted me to be excited for the new Bruce Springsteen song and I, and I think I was like almost you know doing that Kevin the teenager shit like, in those days whenever I like a singer songwriter got a band together they kind of looked a little bit overly rocky <laughs> yes so I can remember going yeah, cool drummer <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay so I've uh, put in a wee uh, indulgence for me there Kate Bush She's just had quite a big album with The Sensual World. And I'm thinking, eh, she's, you know, maturing, got more in her. You're going to put Much Money in Kate Bush in 1990? I think This Woman's Work comes out in 1990 like is and is a big hit in America or Love and the Anger. Like, there's songs from that album that are big American hits.
1: I don't know. I just, she just didn't have the same commercial value as uh, Bruce Springsteen, Neil Young, Madonna, George Michael.
0: You put Money in Kate Bush, you're fucked. Like you put money in Kate Bush and you get a ninety three album, and then pisses off like for for twelve years. I think I would put a few quid in Kate Bush and not feel too bad when I got burned by that, and not be that surprised. But I like Central World. I remember being impressed by the music on that album and thinking, oh, here she goes, but she burns out real quick. One but more album,
1: but th- but that's more like um, you're 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 putting the money on, and you feel good that you put the money on. <laughs> but you just just,
0: you're not doing it to get the money back putting money on women being more in control of their sound their image their music in the 90s and Kate Bush having been the trailblazer for that is a wise investment and uh, they aforementioned Tori Amos but also PJ Harvey as well I think that's a wise investment like and and is there a sense of that with Kate I mean Kate Bush is still hanging around alone apart from our next one on the list Sinead O'Connor but are you can you predict that suddenly Fiona Apple PJ Harvey all of these the fe- single females are going to be highly respected in the way she was in the 80s in 1990
1: uh, I don't know it's hard to say but I think Sinead O'Connor you're definitely be- you're definitely throwing the 100 on Sinead O'Connor easy after nothing compares to you
0: Tell you what, Shania gonna do with that hundred quid.
1: <laughs> She's gonna stand on Saturday Night Live and rip it up.
0: <laughs> rip it up with a picture of the Pope on it. Yeah. She, and and you're going to toast. your burning money with a well yeah. done, well done. Go
1: on, rip it up more. <laughs> rip it up more, Sinead.
0: Go on, weak the cakes down and piss on it. Too. Like, I mean, <laughs> you get She does it for the purest of good motives. But yeah, you're gonna. You're going to be... You're going to be losing that money on Sinead Corner, Prince fucking hell. You're going to have a hair-raising 90s waiting to see where your money's paying out with him. <laughs> yeah.
1: I don't know. It, it's going to be worse than watching, like, those Bitcoin bloody... Those Bitcoin graphs.
0: Whoa, Jesus, what's he at yeah. now? What's he, what the fuck's he at now? Jesus Christ. Certainly, like, if I put my... If I'm in the 90s and going, okay, another number one album, Prince terrible film another one album i'm gonna be getting into late 91 going oh there it is i mean diamonds and pearls what a fucking album and even then you get as far as like 94 and could this could you be the most beautiful girl in the world going this is great this is great what the fuck why are you drawing on your face what are you doing what stop what what the fuck
1: <laughs> what, what slave 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 oh you still had to wait
0: another 15 years for him to be canonized as you know the group in the
1: top five isn't he
0: loads of people still share the video of him playing the final guitar solo on the super group tribute to george harrison when they're playing why my guitar gently weeps and you've got like the rest of the traveling wilburys and george harrison's son and then suddenly prince comes in from the sidelines and finishes his guitar solo and <laughs> <he's> like, <laughs> Yeah, you know, and, and so by the early noughties everyone was like oh no no Prince is untouchably brilliant you know he, he that's him getting past his awkward phase to being a godfather of everything actually I, that's a name I didn't put in the list but let's talk about it and caveat it with sorry like that we're having to talk about it but Michael Jackson 1990 Michael he's Jackson. had a funny couple of years like Bad comes out in 87 and Dangerous is a year away. It's four years where he's been dining off the bad songs.
1: But no matter what happens, you're putting your money on Michael. You're you're always yeah. gonna get your money back off Michael Jackson.
0: And you, by ninety five, you're gonna be going, Ugh, I don't want it." But but then <laughs> again, like it. even
1: even um, Dangerous, that 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 album just hit at a really Massive. good time as well. You know, like all those new Jack swing tracks, just yeah. absolutely landed. Just even. Before Madonna, yes. Before Madonna started using like Shep Pettibone and those kind of records, then obviously David Bowie was a wee bit too late, as always in 1993. With but I mean that that's a far better album than Bad.
0: Yeah, but um, it's interesting. He does he does last the 90s quite well. I mean, he gets Christmas number one He has a good. 90s he keeps going you're gonna be glad you put the money on him and then you're gonna go and have a shower and give it away <laughs> yeah 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 you're definitely you're, you're not you're not keeping that money i'll get on to madonna in a bit but i'm gonna jump across the atlantic happy mondays you're putting money on the happy mondays like and you're you're putting, gonna crack.
1: you're putting money on them and you're 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 crossing your fingers hoping that um, sean Ryder's not going to spend it on the worst coke he can find and he will
0: it's funny um. like I, I should put as a subcategory here sean Ryder is a good bet Bez is a good bet if you're looking for hilarious TV personalities. <laughs> yeah. But the Happy Mondays is a band. You're listening going, this is so fresh, it's so interesting, these like kind of white boy dance act. like Everything about them is so exciting, and you're wrong. They have nothing else. They have nothing left. The next time you see them, they'll be playing Judge Fudge on The Word, and Sean Ryder will be calling Julie Burchill a slag, and <laughs> okay, it's over. Yeah. It's dead, and everyone's just like the circus has left and leading on from that the Stone Roses
1: Stone Roses probably out of all the bands on this you're probably betting on the Stone Roses more than anyone
0: I wouldn't have I heard One Love in 1990 the one new song they released in 1990 and it is fucking gash and they are I just no time I never had any time for them I can proudly say in 1990 it was like fuck these guys
1: are you saying this because you're you are a confirmed absolute Stone Roses skeptic from day one
0: Oh, I, oh, no, I always hated them. I love Fool's Gold and I love Waterfall and I hate everything else they do and I think they're shite and I always thought they were dickheads. And I remember seeing them in 1989 on The Late Show when the like power went out and Ian Brown's going, you bunch of amateurs. <laughs> going yeah. Wankers. Like, I remember, even at 14, Like I remember. It, I remember instantly first time i saw happy mondays properly was the rope for luck video where they're like off their heads on the hacienda and going that's the coolest thing i've ever seen this is fantastic and the stone roses are wankers like i just held those at 14 simultaneously i like loved the happy mondays loved everything they were doing and hating the stone roses doesn't matter either bet would have been a foolish one they were both gonna burn you yeah just for very different reasons, the Happy Mondays were going to burn you, and you were going to thank them for it for doing it so cool. Like oh, that was really cool the way you totally busted me.
1: Yeah, they're like the Happy Mondays was a bit of a KLF burn the million quid. Oh yeah, never just yeah.
0: Okay, let's go to the KLF because there we go. Nineteen ninety, what time is love? Can you predict from that tune what the next three years the KLF are going to be like? The thing about
1: the KLF. You could probably could predict it was they were going to be a really short-lived act.
0: But could you have predicted with "What Time Is Love" that they were going to be that big for the next three, four years? Is it that obvious? I know that everyone says, "Oh, hey, that's the guys that did the Doctor and the TARDIS June. Can you predict by the end of '91 how enormous the KLF is going to be?
1: Ah, uh, no way! You you definitely wouldn't have predicted that. Like they were actually the biggest singles band in the world at then that year.
0: Like if you if you're sitting in 1990 and you hear "What Time Is Love." And, like, it's so acidy and so brilliant and clever and weird. Are you predicting that the following late winter, spring, 3 a.m. A. A. eternal is going to make you weep? It's so good. Are you predicting that? When you hear What Time Is Love, that it's just going to be everything, and they're going to be everywhere.
1: I think I am. Even though I might be yeah. just pretending to be uh, on hindsight here. I'm fully gung-ho with the, with the KLF then. Okay. If because you're probably backed as well with with the manual how to write how to write a number one
0: ah yeah certainly what you're not going to predict is they're going to burn your hundred quid if, with if, another if, manual. <laughs> yeah. if
1: if you're following the form if you're if you've got the the pop racing post and you've got like your hundred <laughs> quid and you're following the form going oh, these guys have actually written a, a a manual how to do this so Fair yeah you're, you're you're sticking your money even if they do but burn it on a but on at a least Scottish Sean Ryder rider
0: didn't mean. Sean Ryder didn't mean to burn it in a crack pipe. They're literally going to go, oh, thanks for that. We're going to burn it. Let's jump back across the Atlantic herself. Madonna.
1: Madonna, right. Absolute flawless bet, really. She, I think Madonna had a, a pretty f- flawless 1990s.
0: I know like you rate erotica musically, but she got a lot of slagging for like getting her bum out and like, like wearing gotier underwear while she was pretending to like do things. Like, she, she did become a little bit of a joke there was a spitting image sketch where like some sun reporter shouted at her um oi madonna don't get your tits out like <laughs> yeah. that 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 erotica thing she did in trying very uh, honorably and understandably to express a kind of a sexually liberated feminism got slagged off i would say you're not going to be totally comfortable with your bet until ray of light
1: but oh, jesus christ what a what a, pay, what a late payoff.
0: Don't get me wrong, I love mid-90s Madonna, but I'm not feeling like she's got another big win in her in the mid-90s. And, and Evita will tell you like, oh, is that where you're moving into? So by the mid-90s, you're kind of going, I'm going to get a kind of a payoff here, but you're not predicting the one, two of her working with William Orbit and Mirwaz, where you're going to be going, oh, I'm so
1: glad I put that 100 quid down. I know, but remember, we are sitting here in
0: 1990 with no hindsight.
1: 1989, like a prayer. Then 1990, immaculate
0: collection. I would still say if you're saying right, okay, all these bets are been put down in 1990 for a 99 payout. You're thinking by 95, mm. oh, I was yeah. going to do better there. Uh, but you're going to find out she had such an amazing second act in her. Like,
1: yeah. So, you know, so maybe flawless was a wee bit of an exaggeration there. Like, but you're you're definitely like uh, slapping the recent post against your fucking <laughs> fire 1998
0: for uh, yes who knows yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes, she's coming in here. and there's madonna coming back around the <laughs> <laughs> and it's madonna it's madonna it's madonna fuck she um, does it again <laughs> um pixies oh man you're gonna cry yeah valoria their biggest hit they're like turning like crazy maybe like, ones in the know would know that Kim Deal was getting very pissed off with how she was being treated by Black Francis but you, are you going to predict that they're about to completely burn out?
1: suppose all, all the all the bumps and all the praise from Kirk Cobain isn't going to save your 100 quid no uh,
0: like uh, what I'll say about Pixies is from the point of view of prolific output you're fucked because there's one album left from the point of view of great revival by the late 90s everyone's blowing smoke up their ass even though they're at that point Denying they would ever get back together. I mean, in like, if you put down Pixies for a 30-year bet, then you're laughing like they're fucking, <laughs> fucking rolling stones now, you know? Never not turning Yeah, stuff. but if, if, have you been to see them in the last few years? Yeah, it's really depressing. Like,
1: I've had to see them in Marley Park. Frank Black broke a string and just walked off. I think that there were a few songs left, and he just kind of... Yeah. Fuck, fuck, fuck. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> it was just... <laughs> the fuck's going on here oh
0: my god because they can so <laughs> let's talk about Primal Scream I mean I would have put Money and Bobby Gillespie being dead by 91 but <laughs> he's he's definitely the Keith Richards of uh, Generation X it's like he can't be killed by conventional weapons
1: yeah Primal Scream ni- 1990 what, like, what was even going on
0: Loaded and the Kind of very different single version of Come Together come out. Like, I mean, unloaded. If you go to the late 80s, Primal Scream are getting slagged off for playing what they considered outdated sort of indie jangle pop when everyone else was moving into dance music. And then they go, Oh, you mean like this? <laughs> I don't know how much money I, I like. Are you predicting? screamadelica from those two singles not
1: really i mean but also you're not pred- you're not predicting andrew weatherall coming in
0: or the orb or ja wobble or like everything else they did on that album because none of that's predictable. Andy weatherall's not predictable yet the power of a new generation of dance producers and what they're going to do isn't predictable yet not above the waterline fiverr tenor
1: yeah i'm, I'm still going to fight a fiver each way on private <laughs> scream <laughs>
0: Bristol and Trip Hop so eighty-eight, 89 you've got Buffalo Stance you've got Nina Cherry being the big champion of those guys before they're famous themselves but like who knows that Bristol's going to be the big city and going to last longer than Manchester as the big city of England and much more export friendly
1: Now you mentioned there um, Nina Cherry just the the amount of generosity that she has the generosity of spirit I think she won a Brit Award in 1989 and she melted it down to give to Jazzy B and members of Soul to Soul. She also used her royalties from Rolex Sushi to kind of bankroll Massive Attack. So Blue Lines was recorded at her home, and then she she just spends the next few decades just nonstop working with really really cool, interesting artists. I interviewed her a couple of years ago, and she just she really tries almost to deflect away from talking about herself. She's always talking about. The collaborators and how how they elevate her. She's just collaborative with everyone. You know, she was talking about Robin. She's talking about working with uh, Mark Cousins, you know, the director. She just she's just so full of enthusiasm. But whenever whenever she's talking about those nineteen nineties years, just being around Massive Attack and like talking about the inspiration there, and also that amazing leg up as well she gave just just to go here. Here's my house. Here's the money. Take as much as you want. Record this album.
0: I love her second album. I love Homebrew. It's one of my favourite albums of all time. There's such a warmth and such a... Especially the back end of it. I absolutely love that album. And yet... By then, she's been totally eclipsed by Massive Attack, by Trip Hop, by by everything that she was bigging up. She does get another couple of big, big hits, but nothing like what we were expecting. She releases one single in 1990, and that's from the Red Hot and Blue album, the AIDS Benefit album. And maybe she just takes too long between all like Sushi and Homebrew. And as you said, is too generous, too helpful to the people that helped her get successful and doesn't seem to mind. <laughs> Nice.
1: Absolutely not. But even in the last few years, in the last maybe 10 years, the, the, the collaborations, you know, she's worked with The Thing, that kind of Free Jazz Act, just doing kind of interpretations, even her here doing interpretations of MF Doom tracks, uh, Mad Villain tracks. Then she's worked with Fortet. She's always just kind of around the outskirts of the underground.
0: But she had been since hanging out with the slits and like singing backing tracks on the there like she'd been around in the early 80s as a very young woman as a teenager with cool people even back then and the first time i saw her was the duet she did with matt johnson on slow train to dawn where she's tied to a railway track (laughs) as a dodgy video she'd been around by 1988 she was finally getting her dues gonna have to burn through the rest of these okay let's see what's important hair metal Aye, you're, you're definitely going, that's gone. Even even by 1990, it's gone. Um, I put down their Grebo, so that's all of those West Midlands and similar kind of bands. I mean, Jesus Jones, look, look again somewhere, EMF, making you think, but if you know what you're talking about, you know these guys have got not much in them. Industrial, like Ministries 88 um
1: well, uh, you, you've no idea. You've you've no prediction of that that actually
0: just taking over the mid nineties. No, that the, the grunge gives it the thing to leapfrog off of and be like even bigger.
1: Or you know, even our our old friend David Boy kind of giving the Trent, giving Trent Reznor the seal of approval. Yeah.
0: No, indeed, indeed. Although by then Trent was enormous because the downward spiral was huge. Grunge in general, like I mean, Gardens 89, Loud Love, Mud Honey. Of all those bands, actually, it's Nirvana, you're not really predicting much for. Soundgarden were signed to A&M in 89.
1: But listen to Louder Than Love. It just sounds like a, a metal album, really. A facelift, Alice in Chains' Facelift, that's a metal album. Bleach, recorded for about 600 bucks, sounds like a pure punk album. You're not putting any money on that. like and then, then you've got, you know, whatever bands like Tad, I mean, Mud Honey. The, the, those always just sounded like the types of bands that were just going to be knocking around for forever on the underground
0: so really it does actually come down to the one two hits of Nevermind and bad motor finger and versus although versus doesn't really get big until 92
1: 10 10 10 was out around the same ten, sorry, couple of months ten.
0: yeah but yeah there's no predicting that these scuzzy Guys in tartan shirts from the Northwest are going (laughs) to completely re-explode everything in a totally new direction. Beastie Boys, you are definitely asking for your money back from them. You're going, there's no one's putting money in the Beastie Boys and they're all fools. How did
1: Paul's boutique go down?
0: It was a commercial flop and then check your head, just fucking... Anybody putting money in the beasties would have been taking a very long shot and would have been laughing all the way to the bank.
1: A couple of years later, you've got, like, Sabotage. It's probably the biggest indie
0: club song of the whole decade. Oh, yeah, and Ill Communication was colossal. The next on the list that I've got is Ireland's favourite sons, Dublin's favourite sons, U2. So you're sitting 31st December 1990. How much money are you putting on U2 for being a good bet?
1: The 90s. I don't know, it depends because Rattle and Hum came out in 1988, and you two had leaned way, way into that American blues stadium rock. It was, it kind of was a bit of a dud after you know the amazing success of the Joshua Tree, but they still would have been huge at that point, so you probably would have bet on them. Kind of, they could have went on to become like a classic rock band, you know, their first 10 years or so, they had enough hits to keep them going for another 30 years, but then you know, the famous quote of him saying they were going to go and chop down the Joshua tree and come back with something different. And, you know, Bono and his uh, profound statements, you know, we were recording this just a few days after his, his Ukraine poem was read out in by Nancy Pelosi, <laughs> you know. But this this was actually one that, that rang true a bit, you know, because I did take a couple of years off. Went to Berlin, Hans's studios were... You know, there was obviously a little bit of inspiration that they took from where Bowie was recording his Berlin albums. Come back in 1991 with Achtung Baby, which, I mean, they really went for a different sound. They kind of embraced irony, took the piss out of themselves. And even further on down the line, they went for that multimedia live sh- spectacle. That really was a kind of a, a template for every kind of overblown rock show since.
0: They, they, there's no doubt they, they reinvented Stadium Rock. And up the ante entirely with the the zoo TV tour.
1: Yeah, I was a bit too young for zoo zoo TV, but you know, watching videos of it, it just seemed incredible. You know, you had those the hanging trabant cars and just like the whole spectacle of it. You know, even even you know, I've been to the the little museum of Dublin, and there's one of the cars, the U2 cars from the from the zoo TV tour in as one of the displays, and it just it just it just looked so incredible at the time. You know.
0: I think what's what's interesting for me is, so yes, as you said, the Rattlin' Hum juggernaut ran out of steam. They had, I think the last big hit they had from Rattlin' Hum was All I Want Is You, which was a big hit in the summer of 89. 1990, they suddenly slip in late in the year. They do one of the Cole Porter versions for the Red Hot and Blue AIDS Benefit TV special. Right. And they're doing night and day video directed by Vim Vendors. And it's the first hint of them doing something much more where they're going to, which is electronic, dancey. That's the first hint that a new U2 is coming. But Acting Baby absolutely exploded. Everyone I knew had that album. People who, as you say, like weren't into their sort of blues rock, BB King stuff at all, loved that album. And the involvement of people like polo confold remixing even better than the real thing that set the template and they were very happy to be in that world for the next two albums after that as well for zurupa and for pop that they were very happy to be playing around with dance remixes and dub remixes and as you said the irony after the the leaden earnestness of live aid era and joshua true era you two, that they were being wittier and more self—you know—deprecating, they wouldn't be. They that wouldn't last. By the end of the decade, they would become such insufferable arseholes.
1: If you walk around Dublin, you, you're never more than like about ten meters away from you know that the the, the graffiti that's it's all around Dublin. It's just like Bono is a pox. <laughs> but I think I think most of the Bono is a pox is kind of late, now, maybe two thousand onwards. You start sucking up to George Bush. Yeah, because there was just so much. Like it just got too much, you know, for for a while. 80s Bono was a bit of a pox, okay, right? And he was just, but he was so earnest and he did kind of think he could change the world, but he was young at the time. Aye. The way he did it in the 2000s, it just grinded people's gears too much. But in the 90s, I think they're kind of leading into how ridiculous the whole rock spectacle was and they were, they
0: were funny with it, you know? And yeah. they also didn't really alienate their fan base. They had a temporary hiatus in their pomposity and their moral superiority during that period where... They produce their best music, the most resonant with the time. I mean, when you get to them going back to real cock rock. You've got Bono saying at the start of the decade, I can't remember
1: if it was some awards show, you know, about chopping down the Joshua tree. And then... I think it was nineteen ninety nine or two thousand. He comes out with "We're re- reapplying to be the biggest band in the world again," something like that. I think it might have been at the MTV Awards. But then, what did they come back? It was just this really safe stadium rock, you know, "Beautiful yeah. dev, "Vertigo," "Elevation." It just, uh, it's just like sports montage music, really. It just got was so, so by numbers. But like, I don't care what anyone says. I'm not like, I'm not the biggest U two fan or anything. But those, some of those nineties albums were just incredible i think Acto baby is a 10 out of 10 for me
0: the question is if you have witnessed them at the back end of that tv special on the first of december 1990 doing this very weird cover version of uh fred astaire tune uh, cole porter tune do you have any sense at all that they're about to completely and utterly blow up the 90s and be absolutely enormous and widely loved for the stuff they're doing can you predict that
1: you're not going to predict but you're going to stick you're going to put money down that they're going to be huge because you're probably going to imagine them from that point even if you kind of disregard the the Cole Porter Fred Astaire thing because that probably wasn't really that famous but if you're just going by Rattlin' Hum and Joshua Tree and everything else around that you're still thinking they're going to be massive you're still Uh. thinking they're going to be this classic rock band anyway so no matter what way you throw the money you're still going to imagine that it's a really safe bet and either way Way, it would have been a safe bet because they could have gone on and just even if they'd stopped making records in 1990, they still could have toured for for decades on the
0: the music that they already had. Aye, good point. Here, how about a band who actually at one point supported them before they got their own stadium status? REM. If you're sitting in 1990, REM released Green in 1989 have a big hit with Orange Crush. They don't release anything of significance in 1990. They're a year away from losing my religion. How do you feel about REM's long-term prospects New Year's Eve 1990?
1: But you're you're probably just thinking another pretty pretty great american college radio band you know but at the same time there's lots of these bands that aren't going to become i mean they were probably the biggest band in the world at one point but it's funny because there isn't such a massive difference in sound between automatic for the people and green really maybe some of these singles the singles obviously huge losing my religion everybody hurts and whatever
0: out of time you get losing my religion but also the absolute dirge of although ironic they're just shiny happy people there's some great tunes on out of time but if You're sitting at the end of 1990. You're just about two years off automatic for the people, which will be just colossal, absolutely colossal, and and again universally loved, very popular, but also critically acclaimed, and also people with quite sort of self-defining obscure tastes going, ah, it's fucking cracking album. It like are you giving them that level of like you know you saw them in '95 in a big stadium. Yes, Slane. I saw them at Slane, which was
1: like this probably Ireland's biggest venue. Really, you're talking eighty, eighty thousand official tickets plus
0: whoever sneaks in. So that's where R A M would be in five years from this point. Do you feel that about them? Is, can you smell that about them at that Not point? Not at all. You'd you, you bet them on you know kind
1: of second or third division type thing.
0: Yeah, and and it, and it is the one to have losing my religion and then just the singles album that is automatic for the people. It's just single, 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 like
1: funny enough as well, supported REM on that day, supported by another little kind of unknown band, just poking through with Oasis.
0: There's no way you're imagining REM as a stadium band at that point. And they will be gods, rock gods. They will be in the kind of Q select magazine hall of fame by the end of the decade. Nick Cave. He's had a reasonable crossover with the Good Son. And I think Come Seal These Ships is basically released as a Christmas single with a snowy video. Oh yeah. The ship song, yeah. But the Nick Cave that you're gonna be seeing sort of between sort of Red Right Hand and the murder ballads, like the absolute establishment of Nick Cave as a, a real elder statesman of of the music scene. Do you feel that yet? Is the good son enough? For you to go. This guy's gonna be big.
1: Not really. At that time, you've still got like a lot of birthday party type anger, and it just doesn't have the same kind of gravitas. It's quite angry. Apart, from, then, then again, the good son does ha- does have a lot more tender moments. It's funny because you know, a lot of Nick Cave albums. He's got I don't know many albums, like twenty or so. It veers between you know pure visceral, you know fire and brimstone on albums like say even murder ballads and then you'll have something that follows after that no more shall be part like just th- thinking of the albums he has in the 90s the boat the boatman's call let love in you can find him just really really maturing as as you said elder statesman of rock type thing but i mean that that probably sounds a wee bit too short because it's all very it's all almost feels really literary or something in a lot of in a lot of the albums then again the first album i heard was murder ballads which was it is a kind of tongue-in-cheek that's 1996, right? So it's a kind of tongue-in-cheek tech on classic murder ballads with a lot of really, really twisted dark humour.
0: And it is the one that I think fully slots him into that established status, is that album, and, and especially working with Kylie. Just that that's where he takes his credibility all the way into mainstream success with absolutely no compromise, and will go on to just keep on being very very successful and and absolutely loved yeah but 1990 he's funny popular commentary about him at the time really don't know how to take him
1: people just don't really get the irony at the time he's kind of seen to be this real kind, obviously like a goth kind of hero but also a little, a little bit too serious like where, where does he fit in like where does Nick Cave who's probably only around 30 at the time or like maybe in his 20s where does he fit in with this really archaic style kind of an archaic Look and subject matter you know he sings a lot like there's a lot of religion and a lot of kind of even Old Testament type imagery where anything else that was doing well in the charts it was just a little bit more either ephemeral or later on through grunge a little bit kind of more personal or more really kind of angst ridden Nick Cave is like big picture kind of stuff you know on top on top of these like uh, love songs and songs about death
0: but a lot of kids who would have been into grunge would have been very very quickly finding their way into Nick Cave
1: Yeah, that was my gateway, 100%.
0: And I suppose maybe there's a parallel between him and Tori Amos. Tori Amos's failure in 88 with her band, Why Can't Tori Read, was based on the record that was saying, get away from that piano, get over there and sing. Nobody nobody wants pianos anymore. No one wants a woman behind a piano. What, like, you think Carole King is still a thing to be like? Get away from there. Go on. You're you're young and you're pretty and you've got a great (laughs) voice. And her trauma in, like, being a failure of a rock star in the 80s led to her like her her therapy was sitting around playing pianos and in 1990 being cloistered and writing the songs that would be Little Earthquakes and Tori Amos was very comfortably marketed as like the grunge Carole King or the grunge Joni Mitchell you know (laughs) because partly because she did that she did that very downbeat piano cover of Smells Like Teen Spirit very soon after it was released. But I think there's something about Nick Cave doing that very carefully crafted Tom Waits-esque composition and songwriting and putting a whole band together and really, really crafting the songwriting and Tori Amos re-establishing the the woman and the piano with a very, very different way of using that and what subject matter she was talking about and the level of confessional and female bodily sort of narrative that she was doing. But I see the two of them following a similar path. They, they They were cut Through something that no one was expecting in the nineties, that teenagers and young adults and in their twenties would be buying this kind of very, very honed, crafted songwriting, rather than as you said, the visceral explosion of emotions that you get with some Like teen Spirit or with the kind of poppy British indie stuff that this like they're doing something so much more measured and crafted and yet it's very very popular with, with a younger audience there's something really commendable about not pandering to anything around
1: even through the 90s you had the likes of you know the like most respected metal bands uh, even Slayer did like a new metal type album Di- Diabolus and Musica whatever it was called and even like you No know, Metallica bands that were almost you had a mad were really pure They're like the, the purest form of their genre were just trying to just to kind of worm their way into the public whatever was popular at the time but like Nick Cave and Tori Amos just did not waver at all from whatever his artistic vision at the time was he just leaned fully into that and it was all it's always different he, he doesn't have two albums you just never know what you're going to get
0: and even even when he's doing a double album he deliberately goes these are two different albums together as an album yeah see the interesting thing talking about yes as you said like metallica getting more deeply into trying to follow trends rather than set them. i mean tori amos and nick cave play a very big part in deciding what the 90s look and sound like by being absolutely resolute and uncompromising and that includes even when tori amos enters into the dance floor in 1996 that remix sounds like nothing else like most remixes of that time are just like okay get someone to stick uh, some electronic beats on there and what, yeah. what she had with Armin van helden was someone who said no no this is all her like that baseline is from the original song i just sped it up and looped it like everything every sound on that like so even when toriamos has a massive dance floor hit like an archetypal 90s remix hit it is on her terms Yeah, that's a a really
1: good point because she kind of deferred to him to go, you know what, this is your... Lane, you know exactly what to do with this but also, like he, he obviously captured the essence of the song for the dance floor. A lot of remixes, as you said they were so safe. Even bands that I really liked at the time, you know, even Therapy like a lot of their remixes were just, you know stick a, stick a, a, a different beat around but you still kept all the melodies and all the, the, the verses as well
0: Well let's talk a bit more about remixes I'm going to do a bit of a one-two but most famous remixer of the 90s, Richard D. James, the uh, Cornish techno witch himself, the Apex Twin <laughs>
1: A lot of the times we get pissed off whenever British people claim Irish people, but we like to claim Richard D. James as a Limerick man in Ireland. Even his last album was nominated for the the, uh, Choice Music Prize, which was a little bit of a
0: stretch. Is he in Limerick? Is he living in Limerick now?
1: no, but he, he was born in
0: Limerick. Ah, and also Corn, Cornish or Celts. So. Yeah, so we definitely, we
1: do like to claim Mr. James over here.
0: Where's he at in 1990? He's really young in 1990.
1: He's really young and he's just, it's uh, funny enough, when, when was uh, Selected Ambient Works, when was
0: that released? Was that that's, So that's like 85 to 92 is what it says on the label anyway.
1: So at that point, has he even... Polygon Windows stuff. Polygon Windows, was that 1990 or 89? Hold on to I? double check, Mr. Google. I've just found out that Richard D. James is 50 years old this year. Jesus. Right. Oh, Polygon Window was 1993. Ah, right.
0: So, so, had he released anything by
1: 1990? It's called Selected Ambient Works, 85 to 92. But, what age would he have been in 1985?
0: So, he's the same age as my brother John, because he's like turning 50 this year. So, 85 Our John is 13. So, he's 13 years old. Some of the tracks that he's put on that he's saying he wrote when he was 13 so
1: either either like he's he's not exactly a reliable narrator but whatever happens like that's that's one of his first releases and he has a few releases like 1991 analog bubble bath 1991 so 1990 you probably don't know afx twin unless you're unless you're a kid knocking around forest raves in cornwall so you're just not going to know who he is at all even unless you're really really in the know of the early 90s you're not going to have any kind of a clue really no
0: and yet by the time he's 21 he is a household name beyond the people listening to him but he's already got a legend and by the time in 97 the the teletubbies song comes out the churchill <laughs> has it on its pop-up now we want the Apex twin remix How so I'm that's bad, like man. on the chart we talking about the Teletubby song he's getting name dropped there
1: yeah i can remember i think i bought select magazine whenever i was moving to queens or i brought some magazines probably to read it and like probably lie throw around my dorm and stuff like i remember reading about Afex twin going oh, this like, it was just kind of, it was one of those mid-90s FX Twin interviews, you know, the myth, myth-making interviews where he was talking about the, owning a tank and living in a bank vault and, you know, making <laughs> music in his sleep and setting his alarm clock to, to wake up in the middle of dreams so he can transcribe and write and the songs in his head all this kind of stuff I can remember I think it might have been the first conversation I had with you in the halls of residence when we were comparing like have you heard therapy have you heard Metallica have you heard uh, Pixies well oh my god Right then then I, I brought up uh, Aphex Twin and you had a copy of the tape I, I care because you do so like that was well you were my gateway and AFX Twin apart from that magazine but I just remember I think around those of us, a few years, a few years in the 90s, like
0: the mid 90s, where
1: even though he was still pretty out there bit of an outlier there was definitely a lot of crossover as well
0: he he very very quickly got respected by very serious people philip glass he very quickly joined a pantheon of very substantial music makers and you know i think the talk was oh, the, the i think partly because of his youth the, the mozart of electronic music oh yeah <laughs> very early on he was getting that but also he as you said his deliberate sort of Like self mythologizing and and telling very deliberate lies to mess with people, and also the myths about oh, the sandpaper on the decks and the microphone in the blender. You know, he he got this reputation. But to think that someone, if you're sitting in December 1990, you don't even have to have heard of the AFX twin. But if you say to someone, right, here, I'm going to tell you about this guy, how much money you want to put on him, and you tell these sorts of things about this guy, I don't think you're going to put much money on an idea of an artist like that. And yet, by 99, he is just like, you know, he, he would be like the album of the week in the Guardian music review. You know, that level yeah, yeah, of yeah. fame, that level of established respect.
1: And still something like Come to Daddy or "Windowlicker" is still one of the most recognized, even mainstream media. The, the image of AFX Twin's face, he's just created such an icon just with that evil grin.
0: So the, the two versions of that on the covers of I Care Because You Do and the Richard D. James LP that he would then play off in things like Come to Daddy and uh, Window Windowlicker videos. I mean and, and just how huge he would become internationally. And Madonna was sniffing around him in the late nineties, going like who next? Who can I steal from next? Is think that would have been a that would have been a a step
1: too far (laughs) Madonna although but then then again Madonna's a lot more inventive I think than some of the remixes that actually went ahead this is another one of these myth busting ones where someone apparently called from the record label saying you know he was due to submit a Lemonhead's remix and he just basically went to his basement and just gave them a dat tape of something that was lying around you know who knows whether these stories are true but there, there was definitely a lot of that even even on that you know the Nine Inch Nails further down the spiral album remix album there's an AFX twin tune at the heart of it all that has zero from Nine Inch Nails it was just a new track so who knows you know, you are saying he was a really like, famous remixer. Who knows how many of these were just straight, totally out of his head. The remix collection is called 26 Mixes for Cash. And there are definitely a few where he's
0: taking a lot of liberties with the raw material, let's say. Which is the opposite of what Armin van Helden does with Tori Amos. But I think, yes, if we, if you're telling someone with 100 quid in their pocket, you're going, dead. And also, right, okay, there's this guy in Cornwall, right? And he's 18, and he, does, he builds his own synthesizers and some of his shit sounds absolutely whacked out like you've no reference point for this and he is a regular prankster he's mysterious as hell he likes to make demon faces of himself (laughs) he's going to make video in 1997 that will actually traumatize people do you want to put some money on that and you're gonna go fuck off
1: yeah i reckon you're you're throwing your your tenors on onto the sandpaper (laughs) and scratching them (laughs) back and forth going We'll probably leave that to some kind of uh, performance art um, exhibition.
0: He is essentially an artist, a performance artist, but he will capture the popular imagination and be very, very successful throughout this coming decade. But there is no hint of that in December 1990. Okay, moving on from Apex Twin, let's talk about the rest of the kind of superstar DJs. The power of a name like Paul Oakenfold on a remix by sort of mid 90s i mean he's already done some of that he's been remixing the happy mondays the name's already kind of out there not necessarily like featuring or oakenfold remix yet but the that sort of crossover from ibiza to mainstream single success are you predicting that like these remixers are going to be artists in their own right? Definitely not in
1: 1990. We still had the idea that kind of rave culture was just this kind of outsider renegade type movement Prodigy's music for the jilted generation you know you still have that you know the it's a cover of the cops trying to shut down a rave and like a kind of long-haired hippie cutting down the drawbridge so you know that on their partying yes it was still almost seemed to be like kind of a protest movement around that time so at that stage there was no there was definitely no real idea that they would have become proper establishment
0: like as in that you know you would pay to see them you would pay a lot of money to go see Paul unfold, or Judge Jules or Pete Tong it's funny I remember a uh, last module of my degree it was doing politics popular culture and I compared that album artwork of the kind of like beanie-hatted raver cutting the drawbridge down with the dystopian yeah. police state on the other side of the cavern and that about three or four years later there was a an advert where a guy was going like in a service station yeah yeah yeah, yeah I'm trying to find like where the field is and the voiceover goes this is wrong and it cut to the most commercial looking club and all these models it's going this is pete tong so by the late 90s david holmes paul oakenfold i mean oakenfold has his old remix album perfecto and david holmes is certainly at that point his name is beginning to be the name on the single not remixed by but like this is my tune i can't say any of that in 1990 i mean orbital haven't released their first album yet so the even the idea that a dance artist can produce a whole album of work that will be considered an album that you sit down and listen to is not there yet do you remember watching the itv chart show on a saturday morning
1: you know you had the you know you obviously had the real the, the proper uk chart then you had the indie chart the the you know and then you, you would see the top 10 you see the videos but every time the Most of the vast majority of the videos in the dance chart, it was just like generated, you know, CGI because obviously it was almost like all the dance artists were really, really anonymous. There was no career to speak of. They were just knocking out these 12 inches that were somehow getting into the charts through DJs buying them.
0: The majority of those big rave tunes that will dominate the second half of ninety one, like Oceanic Insanity, even Prodigy Charlie, like, you know, it takes a while to realise that Prodigy are going to be something album worthy. All of those kind of like infantile remixes of uh children's TV themes. There's no sense yet of what will be like by the time you get to Snivelization and Insides, the Apex Twin albums, Left Fields Enormous hit where like those dance albums are sitting in reasonably bourgeois living rooms and being listened to uh while people are like smoking hash at dinner parties like they they will become barbecue dinner party <laughs> levels of listening and then you get on to groove Armada and zero seven you know where where that becomes groovier yeah. and slower and you get into. Like or even Orbital's albums, uh, sorry, The Orb's albums. Like, definitely, I'm not predicting that in 1990. Dance music is still renegade, muddy, festively. But that, yeah, the the, the idea that, like, and I think Screamadelica does a lot to say a dance album is possible, an album you will buy by one artist, full of dance tunes they've made, and you will have it curated, put together as an album to listen to as an arc yeah that's not there yet funny enough
1: scream Metallica is probably
0: the ultimate crossover album isn't it of the 90s i think so from a band who as as we said were like before this sounding like the rolling stones and would again sound like the rolling stones doing something so utterly groundbreaking and trendsetting they they opened up the door for so many artists yeah thanks to well they're they're
1: always 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 um defer the
0: success of that album as well to Andrew Weatherall. Yeah. And he does that again with like say albums like The Haunted Dance Hall by Sabres of Paradise. You know, he he then makes an entire concept dance album. Yeah. And The Future Sound of London, another band he'll put together. Massive attack to a lesser extent. I mean they're working with a different genre kind of, but still that's a whole big dance album not just dance tunes by an artist who gets their one day in the sun, but like a multi-album selling artist. And I think an orbital just become grandees of that. Yeah, kind of anointed as well at Glastonbury, the first,
2: you know, the
1: first big dance act to headline Glastonbury. So that was, you know, that, oh my God, uh, dance music can actually be... I mean, it's always been seen as as this, it was at the time anyway, seen as, as this lesser, lesser music. You know, like, I mean, obviously... This, this shit keeps repeating, you know. Hip hop's not real music. Electronic music's not real music. But you know that Glastonbury performance in like the, was it was at 1994. You might stick your money on dance music making you a few quid at the start, but does it does at the time it does feel like a bit of a fad? But that's only because of the music that was being was being released in the charts.
0: if you've got a keen ear and you see orbital in 1990 playing chime on top of the pops if you're very very smart and you can see that they're cut above but it's hard to tell from such a minimalist dance track that these guys are serious composers with with a big vision that's us transporting ourselves back and thinking that we have a keen ear but do we yeah i think i think we would we'd spot it (laughs) (laughs) Mm, yeah yeah we we'd we'd be right we'd always be right you said hip-hop there like, where do we begin with hip-hop? I mean, as Dave and Christer say, at the end of the decade, hip-hop is the predominant global pop art form. I mean, is that because of Dre or is that because of MC Hammer This in this year? <laughs> is it, like, what can we say? Is it the Bomb Squad? Is it Dre or is it MC Hammer and Vanilla Ice who break down those barriers and will make hip-hop uh, so transformative even by the mid-90s? I think. I think if we say that it's uh, MC Hammer
1: or Vanilla Ice, we're probably going to get cancelled on the spot. <laughs> but MC
0: Hammer, MC Hammer was selling out stadiums with hip hop as his art form. Like it doesn't matter how fucking dreadful it was. <laughs> like he was, he was of the hip hop family, and he did establish himself as an extremely successful pop artist using hip hop. And in that category, let's talk Will Smith as well. Uh, a, a vertically integrated, multi-platform superstar by 1999. I like that term. You put that on his Wikipedia, vertically
1: integrated
0: hip-hop star. I like it. And he's not the only one to do that, but he is. I think Will Smith is the first. Where you've got the TV show, and the albums, and the movies, and as Murrin talked about in episode one, the advocacy for black fashion designers, like you know, getting into the minds of and appealing to the majority of Americans who are white with a with a African American art form whose origins come from poverty and descent. And nineteen by nineteen ninety nine everybody has a rapper on their pop single. Yeah, that's a really good point.
1: You mentioned Will Smith. If you look back and you, you imagine Boom Boom Shake Shake The Room and like the hip hop he was coming out with and you kind of think it's really watered down. It's obviously a lot more watered down than Wu-Tang like Wu Tang Clan or you know in 1993 but and I think you and uh Murren touched on this as well. Do you know whenever you actually go back and watch The Fresh Prince there's a lot of issues being discussed there and, and, and the fact is that he's He's, he's not really shying away from the issues, but he's just it's maybe a little bit more palatable. And not not necessarily just for white audiences. I just think it was just, you know, a lot of times if you want to get these messages across, you have to be really as broad as you possibly can, you know? Yeah. It's not necessarily dumb
0: and down. Y- yeah, you you can be as snooty as you want, but it worked. It, it acted, I think, as a gateway drug. By the late 90s, Snoop and Wu-Tang are having big major pop hits. Yeah, good point. Gravel Pit was like a massive hit. What's to be sniffy about? I mean, Tupac and Dre, absolutely colossal. Dre's producing huge amounts of pop by the late 90s. Great great songs, great tunes. But what, what are we going to be sniffy about? You know, I mean, and here we are still, hip-hop is still really the predominant global pop art form. Shifting sideways from that, I want to talk about two artists who would have been very white-friendly in nineteen ninety but who would go on to express a great deal more affinity with hip-hop and even like Wu-Tang, and that's Mariah Carey and Whitney Houston. Mariah's only just getting started at the back end of 1990. Whitney's already very well established. How much money are you putting down on those two? Well, Whitney Houston was absolutely massive in 1990 anyway, wasn't she? The period between Want to Dance with Somebody and the Bodyguard era Whitney, I think she's on a wee dip
1: at that point. But what about that song "I'm Your Baby Tonight"? That was that was kind of 1990. That was that was massive song, was it, wasn't it? Well, the album was 1990. Aye. Because I'm looking it up on Wikipedia yeah, now. Goodbye. Not that not not that I have not that I am like one of these uh, football style stats stat men. <laughs> 1990. I'm pretty sure that was a that was a massive hit at the time, wasn't
0: it? So your money's your money's safe there. And Mariah, brand new but looking pretty hot as a bet she's vision of love all. what is Mariah Carey's 1990 hit vision of love so sort of like a very smooth oh, yeah, swing yeah. sort of a tune
1: R- R&B artists 1990 you really are well you probably have no idea that it's going to be so massive yeah it kind of lo- alongside hip hop 1990 early 90s you really are that's just the, kind of the start of that decade and it, it now like you know 30 years later being the, both kind of in tandem together yeah it just basically is the de facto pop music of of the day and it was at that time as well i suppose really and
0: as you said earlier you know the adoption of new jack swing by both black and white artists and how that you know opens the way for artists like tlc and en vogue to be huge and and then get forward from that i mean what's the progression that is destiny's child by the end of the decade and then beyoncé and the and the kind of like powerhouse of her and i'll jay-z Yeah,
1: it's probably the the ultimate expression of you know pop culture hip-hop and r&b you know just the two biggest figures and the two biggest the biggest music movements just that's kind of at the top of the tree really and they have been for like the last 10 10
0: years i think okay i think it's safe to say you're definitely putting money down in r&b hip-hop you're still not sure about you know it's it's now into its second full decade to say this will be it everything will be owned by it and these bad boys in LA are about to become the most influential people in international pop music like quite soon into this decade
1: the biggest hip-hop hits at the time were a little bit daft you know, yeah. there, there were, you know, MC Hammer and like that kind of stuff, like the the, the hip hop superstars, let's say. But it took, peop- like it took people like, you know, Dre, The Chronic, even though there were really catchy beats, like they were still working with uh, collaborators or rappers who were definitely not toning down any of their the kind of the stories.
0: What's important is like, even when Snoop comes through sort of 93, 94, as you said, he is talking about. Murder, I mean, well, even go up to 2001 Trey's 99 album or 2000. But well, yeah, like, I mean, <laughs> that album is full of some very, very strong content. They are not watering it down. And yet they're also working with Gwen Stefani and Justin Timberlake by the mid-naughties and producing very big, very big hits. And Snoop is comfortably doing very poppy tunes with Pharrell. And with Justin Timberlake, so it's so they are. They, I think they succeed by not by being uncompromising. We go back to talk about Metallica and Slayer trying to be new metal. Dre is uncompromising. Timberland is uncompromising in their vision, and it work. Everyone wants a piece of it. Same with big beat artists, like they're uncompromising with their vision, and it works. Aphex Twin, and it works. Nick Cave, and it works. It is those who in nineteen ninety are going to stay the course who will be the best bets for the decade.
1: Yeah, that's a very good point, too.
0: I think that's a point to maybe draw things to a conclusion it's it is a a decade of authenticity authenticity crossover and an enormous period for cd sales and record sales that will come crashing down with the slow creep of mp3s by the end of the decade Limeware. yeah above all it's a time to put your money down in music and you'll need to know exactly when to get that money out because that's coming too.
1: When do you take your money out? Is it around 1998, 1999?
0: I would say you're safe. You're safe until about 2002, 2003. You're going to make some money on Libertines albums and stuff like that in the early noughties. And David Gray and Dido and like, you know, if, if you like Moby play, you know, there's a few, a few if you're saying like just betting on CD sales, I'd say stick around till about 2002. And then get the fuck out.
1: Yeah, David Gray. You mentioned David Gray. David Gray album is
0: to this day the highest selling album in Ireland of all time. (laughs) But even in the late nineties, like albums like Grace by Jeff Buckley and stuff like that, like everyone's got that. If you think like albums in the nineties that like everyone has, there's no way you can say that by twenty ten that oh that albums in everyone's house. But all through the nineties, you can say oh there's those albums that are in everybody's house, and you can tell whether they're like kind of bourgeois barbecuers or whatever by like what particular set of those albums everyone has they have yeah but yeah i would say your best your safest bets for the 90s as a whole are hip-hop and cd sales (laughs) (laughs) but who who do we reckon is are the the biggest bets artist wise it's got to be madonna it's it's got to be everything dre touches what's
1: the safest bet and what's the best payout if you took a if you took a long shot, fucking Will Smith,
0: Jesus Christ, you are going to be making yeah, yeah. rain. Even songs from shite films like uh, Wild Wild West and like that Nine, <laughs> yeah. that's a big hit. You know, oh yeah, yeah. So I'd say the other thing to bet on is sampling is, is going to be a very safe bet.
1: But oh, maybe for a certain while, because when when was the massive crackdown on on samples being cleared?
0: Even after it was, it's still good business. Like, yeah, okay. So if you're a tribe called Quest, you're gonna you're gonna be seriously burnt by relying on that oh, yeah. legal grey area. But, you know, Will Smith's making a fortune by sampling Stevie Wonder and uh, forget-me-not. Like, you know, you're still, you've, you've got to pay out a lot more of the profits, but you're still going to do very well by banking on the loops of the familiar.
1: So, funny enough, so uh, do we
0: reckon Will Smith is, is, wins the 90s? Oh, fuck Will Smith wins the 90s. Will Smith, yeah, Will Smith compl- yeah, in great. every single way, he's got the biggest TV show. He's got some of the biggest movies. You know, start like you go Independence Day and Men in Black in a one, two year period. And he begins that really establishing that I'm going to be in the film and I'm going to have a hit single from it. It's Will Smith. Well,
1: with money, absolutely no option. You know, you're talking about sampling where you could just sample
0: Stevie Wonder. Right. I think, I think, we've, I think we've cracked it. I think that's it. I think we've found the answer. If you're sitting Crack. watching The Fresh Prince of Bel Air, and you know what you're looking at, that is the star of the The winner 90s. of the 90s. For everything. So at the end of all these four episodes, that's it. It's the TV, it's the fashion, it's the music, it's the cinema. It's Will Smith. Let's crack open a can to Will Smith. And I'm sad to have to announce that since we recorded that episode, that Will Smith's career punched itself in Chris Rock's face. And that's it. We've done the fashion and art we've done the cinema, we've done the television and now we've done the music. We've covered the four areas that we were going to cover. So we're going to take a break. This isn't the end of the 1990 series. We still have more bonus historical episodes to come throughout the autumn and I will be gathering everybody back together before Christmas to do one big final episode about all the topics we've discussed in this series. But I have to say thank you to Mirren, thank you to Mick, thank you to Susie, thank you to Connor and to all of our Bonus contributors for what you've heard so far. And as usual, it's over to you. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter by searching at Zeros Podcast. That's at Zeros Podcast. And as I always say, Zeros is spelt with an O-E-S at the end. So search us on that. You can email us, ZerosPodcast at gmail.com. And a few more thank yous. First of all, a big thank you to Krista and Dave from the Pop Collaborate and Listen podcast for their contributions and their support throughout this series. They've been great in helping us develop all of our ideas and giving us feedback and for promoting us across their own platforms and for that brilliant contribution to this episode. Big thanks to Krista and Dave. Love your work. Love everything you do. And everybody should listen to your whole podcast series because it's hilarious and insightful and brilliant. As usual, a big thank you to Tony Wright, aka Verse Chorus Verse, for our theme tune, but also for this episode. For what was a wonderful walk that we shared, uh, walking around Ormo Park, talking about our mutual love for Fagazi. So, Tony, you're brilliant. I know you've just moved to Glasgow. Good luck there. And everybody, please, if you like our theme tune and you like his kind of music, go to Verse Chorus Verse dot com first chorus first dot com give us music a listen and if you like what you hear then buy it because spotify ain't paying that's all for now I have nothing more to tell you other than very soon there'll be an episode about the release of Nelson Mandela and I'm hoping to get ones recorded on the invasion of Kuwait and on the prelude to the fall of Yugoslavia and the Balkan Civil Wars. So I will be back in touch very soon, I hope. And in the meantime, please do get in touch respectfully. And I hope to see you all soon. Bye bye.